amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. For your appetizer today, I have prepared for you two cases of thwarted expectations regarding the same pitcher. In 1966, the American League Rookie of the Year was White Sox outfielder Tommy Agee, a power, speed, and strikeouts combination best remembered now as a star of the 1969 Mets. Jim Nash of the A's, the Kansas City A's, was the runner-up. Jumbo Jim, as they called him, had a heck of a first year, and he might have won it over A.G. had he performed as well as he did over a full season, but he didn't get called up until July, so he had 18 games versus A.G.'s 160. I should warn you before we go any further that this story is going to end with a blunt reference to the male organ of generation, as they used to call it, the naughty bits, the reproductive anatomy. It will utilize a slang term, not a terribly offensive one, but still, small children, leave mom and dad alone for a minute so they can listen to this, because we know how innocent you are. We know that even if you possess said part, you've never noticed it, never heard of it, have no awareness of what it's for, and what I'm about to say is nothing bad, but I don't want anyone getting mad at me. No doubt you all in your own households have your ways of referring to these things if they ever come up. Or maybe you just say, ask your mother. I don't know. You know, on that subject, I was a CIT at a summer camp, counselor in training. It's like being an assistant counselor. My mom made me do it, and I hated summer camp. I understand what values she was trying to instill in me, or maybe she was just trying to get me out from in front of the TV during the summer. I get it. I don't blame her for it, but at the same time... I was just not that kid, and I don't know if there were the kind of camps available at that time. There are now summer courses for people who like to read as opposed to those who want to run and jump and do those sorts of things that I was never very good at. They probably didn't exist at the time. In any case, it wasn't so much that I enlisted as I was drafted or sold into this kind of foreign nation, this alien culture in which everyone else seemingly enjoyed the hell out of doing camp things. And the way it was structured was that we of junior high school age were supervised by the actual counselors who were high school age, 16 or 17, and they were supervised by a handful of adults. And you can understand that since we were so young ourselves that the campers were even younger. Some of them were just past toddler stage if they were even truly out of it. This was a place that had a swimming pool. And I do remember one accident, nothing fatal, I don't think. I think I would remember that. But with children supervising babies, essentially, it's an amazing thing to me now, in retrospect, that there weren't any real tragedies. I'm relieved about that. I hadn't thought about it in many, many years, but it's strange the way my emotions work. And right now, as I'm telling you these words, I feel a palpable sense of relief about something that didn't happen many decades ago. So very little kids are not wholly socialized. And one of these kids who was just two or three, a boy, 
He liked to grab himself occasionally, in a personal way, I mean, in an inappropriate, in public way, just right out in the open because he didn't know any better. He was getting to know his body, just feeling his way around, and no doubt it felt good to grab that piece of himself, and no one had ever told him not to do that. Or they had, and he just hadn't understood it because at his age he was 90% preferable. And again, he was too young to have learned some of those things that keep us all in line, both in good ways and bad, and I mean embarrassment and shame, but on the other hand, the positive side, I guess, social norms. And all of us younger semi-counselors who were tasked with taking care of the youngest attendees of that camp were aware of it, and it just wasn't a big deal. I'm sure that some of the more adolescent adolescents tittered about it, but it was just something, again, you understood because babies or immediate post-babies or whatever the appropriate way of referring to them is will do that sort of thing, and they'll grow out of it as long as you teach them gently. They will rapidly observe that all genders, as many of them as you choose to count, wear pants and certain objects or items stay on one side of the pants when you're out in public and don't go to the other side of the pants. It's not something to panic over. But one day, I was walking past two of the adults who ran the place on some other errand, and I overheard one, a man, say to the other something to the effect of, I caught Willie playing with himself again, and I gently told him that that was inappropriate and you should never, ever, ever do that in public. You should never touch that. You should never touch it at all. It's a dirty, dirty thing. Or words to that effect. It just sounded really shaming. And I walked away thinking, my God, you've scarred this little fellow for life over nothing. He's a little more decorous now, sure, but he's never going to feel right about taking that thing out again. Even when the circumstances expressly call for it, he won't be able to do it. Be careful with your kids is what I'm trying to say. And never, ever ever send them to summer camp because it sucks. And because of the virus, we're not having those, at least in my neck of the woods this year anyway, which just goes to show you that I don't mean to, I can't make this joke. I was going to say that 90,000 hadn't died in vain, but I can't make that joke. There is nothing funny about that. But I really did hate summer camp. I didn't hate it to that extent. If I could trade my taking one more trip to summer camp for those 90,000 lives, American lives, I should say, there have been many more internationally, then I'll go even now. Probably have a heart attack, but it would be worth it. So Nash, I was talking about Jim Nash. He had only 18 games, but they were really impressive games. Having struck out 129 in 101 innings at AA Mobile, a high rate back then, Nash began the major league phase of his existence by going 7-0 and with a 2.11 ERA in his first nine starts. Opposing hitters averaged 184. He was even better after he lost a game. Over his final 10 appearances, his ERA was 1.75. During those first two months, writers were comparing his career start to that of Whitey Ford, who came up in July 1950 and went 9-0 and with a save and a 2.59 ERA in his first 18 games. Nash was probably a little better than Ford was actually in his debut. He ended up being eighth in the league in pitcher war, even having gotten in only that half a season. They called him Jumbo Jim because he was six foot five, two hundred and thirty pounds, a build more unusual then than now. He wasn't fat at all, he was just large. He was primarily a fastball pitcher. All the stories say he threw about ninety one, and it 
tells us something about athletes then versus athletes now that Nash was treated as if he had major heat. He definitely had good control of that heat or great command of it. He didn't really walk anybody despite throwing that hard. Although Nash was very good, it had taken him a while to come up, in part due to one of baseball's more ridiculous rules, part of a never-ending war on high bonuses that continues right to this very second. The disincentive at this time was called the first-year player draft. The A's signed Nash out of high school in 1963, but they didn't let him pitch at all that year because of it. From 1959 through 1964, any team could draft a player who had just completed his first year of pro ball out of any other organization's minor league system. It was like the Roll 5 draft in that the acquiring club had to keep the player on the big league roster. The rule had a lot of Byzantine permutations over time, and I think giving all of that to you would be exhausting to both of us. So suffice it to say that from June to September of his first year, Nash just warmed up in empty stadiums and then watched the game. 70 games without pitching an inning, he said later. It gave me time to work on pitches. He did get onto the field once. There was a brawl, and he ran out to hit somebody. That was remarked upon at the time when Nash was first achieving his celebrity in the big leagues, but I don't feel like they put the whole story together. Nash was not a highly courted prospect, as far as I can tell. This was before the draft came in. He could have signed with anyone, but he only got $2,000 from the A's. Remember, Charlie Finley had given Catfish Hunter $75,000, so even then, two grand wasn't a lot. It seems as if there was some confusion at the time as to whether Nash had committed to the University of Georgia, and by the time he had made it clear that no, he hadn't, all the leverage had shifted to the team side. Still, you wouldn't think a team would go out of its way to hide a player they had barely made an effort to sign. So, it's possible that Nash's bonus didn't represent what scouts really thought of him, or alternatively, the Braves signed him cheaply because they didn't think much of him, then got a real look at him and said, holy moly, we've lucked into something here, we'd better cover him up. It's a bit like my scenario with Willie, the very young onanist camper, but I guess Nash was able to perform in public after that. He finished his rookie year 12-1 and with a 2.06 ERA. He had that fastball and not much else at the time. The curve and the change were a work in progress, but he could spot it very well and didn't walk many hitters, as I've told you. Suffice it to say that the A's were psyched for year two of the Nash experience. Everyone was. He made the cover of Sports Illustrated the next spring. And here we should digress just slightly because we need to talk about the job A's manager Alvin Dark did during Nash's rookie year, why he got called up for that half season. Now, Dark was not a great manager for a lot of reasons. He was a pretty good player, but his prejudices and his religion seemed to get in the way of his being an ideal manager. That said, it's worth appreciating his lack of complacency that year. As you know, the Kansas City iteration of the A's was miserable. They were there for over a decade and never had a winning record. They lost 100 games five times in 13 years, and when they did develop some talent, they generally traded it to the Yankees as part of a corrupt relationship. On the occasions they got good players back from New York, they almost always dealt them back. It's an unanswerable question as to whether the second half of the Yankees dynasty the 1955 through 1964 part would have happened without these gifts from the A's. 
By 1966, that relationship was over at least, and the A's were acquiring and keeping very good players who would later be part of their dynasty of the early 70s. Dick Green and Burt Campanaris were already in the infield, and Sal Bando got a cup of coffee that year. Catfish Hunter was in his second season. But this is the interesting part. The A's started the season with a rotation of Hunter, who was 20, Roly Sheldon, who was 29, Fred Talbot, 25, Chuck Dobson, 22, and Ralph Terry, 30. It wasn't a super old rotation, but it also wasn't very good, and it had only limited upside after Hunter. Well, none, basically. They had three pitchers who really had pedigree, by which I mean they had been in the rotation for the 1961 Yankees. Dun-dun-dun, trumpet fanfare. Terry, Sheldon, and one other pitcher I didn't mention, Bill Sheldon, who got a handful of starts at midseason. He was the third. They were all pretty good back in 61 with a great infield and 240 home runs behind them, but five years later, they were just done. And Dark, to his credit, didn't fall back on, these are veteran guys, they have rings, they'll figure it out. Hunter stayed in the rotation, but everyone else was chucked out at midseason. Lou Krause, who was 23 and had been pitching out of the bullpen, was moved to the rotation in late June. Paul Lindblad, 24, also in the pen, joined the rotation at about the same time that Nash, who was 21, did, and Blue Moon Odom was called up in July. He was only 20. The A's didn't get that much better in terms of wins and losses because, to paraphrase Ring Lardner, although they didn't pitch well, they also couldn't hit. And not all of those pitchers would be part of the A's mini dynasty because there was attrition with pitchers, as there always is. But in the short term, Nash, Odom, and Kraus all posted ERAs under three. Lindblad was less successful as a starter, but the experiment was worth it in that it answered the question as to what his future was going to be, and that was going to be in relief. And Hunter was good in the first half, and then he got hurt in the second, if you can call missing five weeks due to an emergency appendectomy getting hurt. He pitched poorly when he came back, but he started to put it all together the next year and become the pitcher who would go to the Hall of Fame. I should also point out that under the rule that an almost inevitable component of great baseball moves is contingency, that Dobbs got hurt, which forced Dark to take one young pitcher out of the rotation and replace him with a better young pitcher. Still, the aggressiveness is admirable. Just try something. Try everything. Try it in everything. You've fallen overboard and you can't swim? Try There's a great passage in one of Terry Pratchett's novels, Small Gods, about how if turtles are ever going to be safe from eagles, picking them up and cracking their shells by dropping them from great heights, they're going to have to learn to fly. Try it, Mr. Turtle. You're down to your last at bat. And if you do, if the turtle does fly, you might get a profile like this one in Sports Illustrated in March 1967. Dark's outlook is young and bright. The manager of the Athletics took over a last-place club a year ago and moved it up to seventh. Now, looking at his fine kid pitchers, he plans to go higher. My friends, they finished tenth. Dark got fired. As for Nash, he had a sophomore slump. He almost had to have one. If you've gone 12-1 and with a 2.06 ERA, there are really only two directions for you. To continue upwards and you become Sandy Koufax, which very few pitchers have done, obviously, or you fall off that peak, in which case anything you do that's short of, well, perfection is going to seem like a disappointment. Nash had two-thirds of a season as a league average pitcher in his second year and then fell apart down the stretch. He rebounded very nicely, though. 
1968, the big pitcher's year, turning in a 2.28 ERA in 228.2 innings. He finished second in the league with six shutouts. In 1969, the almost inevitable shoulder problem set in, and at the end of that season, the A's gave up and dealt him to his home state team, the Atlanta Braves, in return for veteran outfielder Felipe Alou. Nash was a funny guy. Asked how, going over to the National League, he would pitch to big, dangerous hitters like Willie McCovey, he replied, very carefully. He said his shoulder had healed up too. I think I'm throwing better now than I ever have, and at times I'm throwing as hard as I used to. It occurs to me that you don't really want honesty from a pitcher in that situation. How's the shoulder? I I just don't I just don't know. It's not the same shoulder. That wouldn't fill you with confidence, even though many times it's the honest answer. Maybe we get it more often nowadays, but When Nash was called up, Alvin Dark asked him if he felt like he could pitch in the big league, son. He said he was sure he could, Dark remembered. He didn't say he hoped he could or maybe he could. I like that in a young pitcher. And that's a subject for further research. How many rookies asked if they could pitch up here by their manager said, Nope, not a chance. Haven't got the stuff. I haven't a clue how I got this far. Help, mom. That said, it's good that Nash was so centered and so confident because there was always a lot of pressure on him after that big debut. Even years later, when the Braves traded for him, the Atlanta Constitution had this report on the deal paraphrasing Braves general manager Paul Richards, who, it said, reasons that Nash will be one of the game's great pitchers if his arm is sound, and of course he can't pitch if it isn't. Hell of a binary there. You'd think you would know the answer about the latter part before making the deal. Otherwise, why make it? I mean, Alou was 35 and really wearing down due to injuries, so the Braves didn't pay a high price. But still, it's strange to say something tantamount to either we got a Cy Young candidate in this trade or we got nothing. We've already discussed what they got. It turned out there was room in the middle. It's a little depressing to admit that's where you should set your expectations in life. I mean, yes, aim higher, as the old cliche goes, if you aim over the barn, then at best you will... No, wait. I haven't thought about this one in a long time. If you're jumping over a barn, aim for the moon, because if you fall short, you'll still clear the barn, but I'm I'm not sure why we're jumping over barns in the first place. It's about how if you don't set maximal goals, you won't clear the minimal goals. I'm very confused right now, and this may explain my failure to achieve all that much in life, because generally when I see a barn, I aim under it and then run into it, and to be honest, I live in the suburbs many years ago many decades ago half centuries ago or more it was a farming community but all the barns have long since been torn down and replaced by condominiums and no one advised me as to how to jump over a condominium so how was i supposed to achieve anything and then there's the danger of irrational exuberance or overconfidence not to beat this analogy to death but you do all the right stuff you aim for the moon intending to clear the barn but you set your trajectory too high almost to the vertical you achieve escape velocity and having failed to pack any oxygen, you get up where the air is thin in the upper atmosphere and you suffocate because as Nash demonstrates, you can have the natural ability. You can even overcome a start in which that ability was discounted for whatever reason, but there's a certain amount of entropy. There are a certain amount of precautions you either fail to take or can't anticipate or are out of your power to affect either way, such as the health of one's shoulder. I mean, more or less. Nowadays, we know more about injury prevention, but In general, it still is what it is. It is subject to repetitive stress injuries. And that brings me to something else that Nash said. According to the great Los Angeles columnist Jim Murray, after a particularly sweaty morning workout in 1969, 
the A's manager, who by then was Hank Bauer, told his players to go into the clubhouse, clean up, and put on another jockstrap. Nash was a little confused by that suggestion. Why? he asked. I ain't got but one cock. I'm Stephen Goldman. For thousands of years, China had a tradition of employing eunuchs as royal servants. A nominee would be handed back his detached parts, referred to as his magic three, in a box. The eunuch would watch that box carefully with the expectation that he would one day be buried with them and thus would be made whole, restored in the afterlife. Lose the box, though, and you'd still be singing soprano throughout eternity. As Jim Nash learned, one can go from 12-1 and 1 to 0-8 and 8 in just a few short years, so why shouldn't one's anatomy be similarly mutable? That is, if you don't take care of it. As those ancient servants will tell you, you can never take anything for granted. Look the wrong way, and you might get what you wanted, but lose what you had. And whether the object of your obsession is your shoulder or some other precious anatomical attribute, you'd better keep your eye on the ball or find yourself wandering permanently disarmed through the infinite inning. Welcome back to the show. How are you? How are you weathering the crisis? Has the, or have, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but particularly pestilence, have they stayed away from your door? Because nothing is worse than a major disease knocking on your door and trying to sell you a magazine or newspaper subscription. Do people still do that? When I was a kid, there were paper boys, never paper girls. I just read, wait, I'll explain this in a minute. But there were paper boys, and I never had a route myself, but I used to sometimes accompany my friends on their routes for delivery and collecting, which was like almost a protection racket, or it felt that way given the reluctance that people had. There were just scads of people who would subscribe to a daily newspaper delivery service for the local paper and then not want to pay whatever it was at the time, two bucks or five bucks. It wasn't anything. I don't think even adjusting for inflation, it wasn't very much. But you'd think that you were taking a pint of blood, a pound of flesh from these people. They just never had it handy. And it was fun to wander about with my friends, but it was also mortifying. And in my neighborhood, we subscribed to a paper and we always paid up on time. I think we did. I wasn't always responsible for it. But we had this one kid in the neighborhood who delivered papers and also sidelined in dealing drugs. And I think at some point he just stopped delivering the papers but kept collecting anyway because that went to his bottom line. And his racket was that he would show up and pick different family members. So if I were home alone as a little kid, and I was quite often, he would knock on the door, say, collecting for the home news, that was the local paper, and I would give him his five bucks or whatever it was. And then a little bit later in the week, he would knock on the door again, and it would be my dad who answered it, not realizing that I had paid off the little bastard, and give him another five bucks. And eventually we cottoned to this. And when I say kid or little bastard, he was an adult. He was a young adult at the very least. I don't know what happened happens in schools today with social promotion and all that 
But there were kids who, between promotions they shouldn't have gotten and ones that they didn't get, you'd see them in the lunchroom, and they were like 33. They were older than some of the teachers and twice as dangerous, which is saying something. I've heard from a few teachers who listen to this program, so let me know if that kind of thing still happens. I know there is an age at which you can drop out, and I assume that at that point, some of the kids who have failed to graduate, some of the young adults who have failed to graduate actually do. But it seemed to me that we had many who just kind of hung around. They weren't there to attain an education. They just enjoyed the excellent lunch service. Or to be appropriately sensitive about the whole thing, did you ever see the 1981, I think it was, picture, an officer and a gentleman, Richard Gere? There's a moment, a famous moment in the movie, or it was at the time, if you were around then, when Richard Gere is being pushed to leave the military and he tearfully says that he can't because he has nowhere else to go. And I suspect that that's really what that was. However, those former children had arrived at that point. They had now reached what was, at least momentarily, a dead end. And, you know, Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. But if there's no fork and no road, then what else is there to do but sit in place for a while and just go with it? And yeah, if they have pizza Fridays, you come in for Pizza Fridays. And I do think that we shouldn't generalize that paperboy slash drug dealer, based on close observation, was a genuinely bad person from an early age. But not all kids who fail to do well in school are that. And I certainly witnessed schools failing to do right by kids who, for whatever reason, could not just do it the way that the mass of kids did. And it makes sense that they would fail them in the way, because if you think about it, education is a industrialized process. It is meant to move a great number of children through every school building every day at a certain regulated pace. And those who gum up the works for whatever reason, the system is no more designed to accommodate them than a factory farm is designed to accommodate square eggs. In that case, they have the luxury of just punting those. And I'm not saying that it's right that it happens to those kids. I'm just saying I understand, given the way we human beings tend to organize things, why it happens. Speaking of square eggs this week, I am joined by David Roth in his usual rotation spot. We talked, as usual, about the impending, like between now and the heat death of the universe, sale of the New York Mets. We talked about our experience watching Korean baseball, which is our substitute. It reminds me of an old peanut strip. I don't think I mentioned this in the conversation with David, but it goes way back into the 60s where Lucy buries Linus's blanket and he goes into a kind of withdrawal and Charlie Brown says, can't you use a dish towel or something? And Linus asks if Charlie Brown would give his starving dog a rubber bone. And I'm not meaning to denigrate Korean baseball at all, but I do wonder about the momentary push there was. It seems to have faded some in the subsequent days to really get us to buy into Korean baseball as a substitute in the same way that you would give a heroin addict methadone. And politics warning, we did talk about some of the columns that David is presently writing for the New Republic, which are not sports columns. They are straight political commentary. And I have seen online and have received some of, I haven't had to talk about this for a while, stick to sports complaints that people tend to have. And I don't understand them at all right now because there is no sports for us to stick to. And the reason that there is no sports for us to stick to has to do with the political and organizational response to the virus. 
This is commenting on sports. If you don't want it, fine. But I can't go over the Mookie Betts trade another thousandth time. I can't tell you about which prospects on the Rays are developing because functionally there are no prospects. And I'm not going to dwell on this over long. You know the story. If you're here, you're used to this from me anyway. I assume that anyone who doesn't want it has long since opted out. But I am not... One more digression, because I didn't even write this piece. I did write at Baseball Prospectus, another Can't Stick to Sports column, about the Hall of Fame and how they opted not to have a ceremony this year because the virus is aimed like a sniper rifle at all the attendees, the Willie Mazes and Johnny Benches who are in their 70s and 80s. That's one thing. But Rob Arthur wrote a piece about baseball's reopening plan and just how difficult it will be and how problematic to hit the health benchmarks that they are proposing to the players. And people in the comments were complaining simply that he used Vox as one of his sources for the information he linked to it, and they were complaining that that site had a liberal bias. The article from Vox that he cited was called The Emerging Long-Term Complications of COVID-19 Explained, which is not about Republicans or Democrats or the CDC or anything like that. It's simply about, and it's not the only article talking about this, some of the problems that people who have contracted this disease have suffered besides respiratory illness. It's not a political thing to say that that happens unless you believe that the whole thing is made up. And if that's the case, I don't know how we can have any conversation at all. I am not the first person to observe this. We have to have a shared reality or there's just no basis for communication. So I despair, at least in that sense. And it seems like a really bizarre shift in tone to say, so I hope you enjoy that discussion, but I do hope you enjoy that discussion. We didn't get into that aspect of it because it hadn't happened yet. But fair warning that if you're looking for complete and total escapism, that's not what we do here. I've seen a lot of baseball content since this all started, and I respect all of it. All of us have to continue to try to entertain or edify, even in the absence of the game. And so some writers are playing simulated baseball and writing that up. Some are doing more nostalgia pieces, not what I do here, which hopefully are never nostalgia pieces, but they're looking back and doing the article I always kind of make fun of. Babe Ruth, he was quite a guy. I'm going to talk about Babe Ruth in a moment, actually, but not on a quite a guy basis. But they can't look forward or they can't analyze the present day, so they're looking sideways or back or whatever direction. Hey, let me tell you all about my baseball card collection is, and again, a thousand times again, I do not want to sound like I am coming out against or criticizing any of the members of my fraternity because this is a hard job at the best of times, especially when you try to be creative in what you do and you're not just squarely on the news cycle. I understand it and I don't fault them and everyone needs to keep their job to the extent that anyone is keeping them. But I do not enjoy fan service and I don't think that that's what the audience that I have is really interested in. So I'm going to continue to march to the beat of my 
own drummer. And in my universe or my drumming, there is no border between sports and everything else. As I say, virtually every episode, baseball is everything. Everything is baseball. And I'm going to go on in that vein for as long as you choose to give me a soapbox. And for that, of course, I am most grateful. I do have more to tell you before I roll David in here. And very briefly, I referred to Paper Girls. I want to recommend this. This series of graphic novels ran from 2015 to 2019. It's very brief and self-contained. It was written by Brian K. Vaughn and drawn by Cliff Chang. And it is available in book form. It is set initially in 1988, which is perhaps close enough to the period I was discussing that I feel confident there were not, at least in my world, paper girls at the time, but still willing suspension of disbelief. It's a science fiction story. It's a time travel story. And it's really a metaphor about the expectations we have when we're kids and how they may or may not work out in actuality. It is beautifully drawn, beautifully colored. That's one of the few times I feel like I've ever said that about a graphic novel, that the coloring really pops and contributes to the story in a way I don't think is universally true of others. But I sat down and I read the whole thing in one sitting after letting them hang out for a while on my shelves. And it was really wonderful. And I'm still thinking about it. I found it kind of affecting And if you check that out, I think you will be rewarded as well, assuming that that's your kind of thing. And if it's not, hey, give it a try. It's not the -the run-of-the-mill superhero story. It has not at all to do with superheroes. And as long as I'm on this subject, I want to give a shout-out to another graphic novel series that has not at all to do with superheroes, but is a little different or very different. It is created by Von Allen, a member of this community, and it's called Wolf's Head. He was kind enough to share it with me, generous enough, and I very much enjoyed it. It is about a former Detroit police officer who gets involved in a kind of technological conspiracy, but it's not so much about that, I think, as about the things that often fall between the cracks in adventure stories, the economic hardships that being in an adventure story can inflict on one, and the way that the adventure story affects the side characters. You know, if you ever watched a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where you have this main character who's really not all that interesting, and she really gets subsumed and swamped in the stories of the supporting characters. Well, when the series begins, the supporting characters are all high school students, and they're on the same trajectory that all of us are on when we're high school students, going to college, getting a job, and so on. But they get sucked into this supernatural universe. And the one thing that never gets addressed in those series, and I'm almost desperate to write this myself in a way, a series called Sidekicks, where people just talk about the U-turn or the the right ankle turn that their lives made because this person wandered into their lives and enlisted them in their mission. It would seem to be really traumatic. No, you are not going to medical school. You are fighting demons. But no one ever accounts for that. Or if they have, I don't know. I haven't watched that kind of series in a long time, I guess. But it seems like a story that needs to be told, doesn't it? You know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are sidekicks. One other piece of business before we yield to a break, and then I will tell you my second story of the day. As I said, Babe Ruth is in it. It's not exactly a Babe Ruth story, although I was moved by his place in the story, assuming it's all true. I think it's all true. I wanted to mention that I have resumed work on what I have lately called the 
Infinite Inning Player Stories book. It began as Dead Player of the Day. This was my series of Patreon-written player profiles done in what we might call the Infinite Inning style. I know a lot of you signed up to read them as well as support the show. There are over 100 of them up there right now. It was my intention from the very beginning to collect them between covers and with some additional never-before-seen pages, as they say in the comic book biz, offer it both as a Patreon premium and, if I was lucky, for sale. That is still the plan, and I worked industriously on it until mid-March, and you know what happened in mid-March. The world changed. And I admit, I got a little discouraged, not just about the book, but about everything. The economy was cratering, and it still is. It was hard to focus, and it still is. And yet, this too shall pass. At least I hope it will, and life should go on, and the storytelling should go on too. And so I am back at it. I am presently writing the remaining bits of the book version, plus the introduction, which so far is about Harold Baines and Don Drysdale, and the added player profiles, and I will give you a list of those once that's done. And... Once we are through with the book, which I hope will just be volume one, I'll go back to adding new players on the Patreon side. I've found that with writing more often for Baseball Prospectus and writing and researching these shows, and again, the sort of emotional disturbances that come with going through what we're going through, I can't do both the set of player comments for the Patreon side and the ones that will build out the book in a given week. So something momentarily has given but I will be back on the Patreon side soon. I only have about 5,000 words to go on the book, and I appreciate your patience, and I hope your enthusiasm for that project. And so, as we relax into the lilting tones of Darn That Dream, performed by Benny Goodman and sung by Mildred Bailey, we will all enjoy a quick break before we resume with more story time. You know, this song is from a flop musical of 1939, Swing in the Dream, a musicalization of the Shakespeare play A Midsummer Night's Dream, had Benny Goodman in it and Louis Armstrong too, and it still died after 13 performances. Goodman did take this song out of it, though, and it went to number one and has been recorded about a million times since, so we still have that. But I find it wonderfully ironic that those who created the show were probably singing the same tune. Darn that dream. See you on the other side. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
I want to start here with best wishes for a speedy recovery, and this is key with no long-term after-effects for former Major League infielder and Astros A's and Mets manager Art Howe, who at this recording is in the ICU with the dreaded coronavirus. We've already lost Philip Seymour Hoffman. We can't lose the guy he played in Moneyball too. Philip Seymour Hoffman's demise predated the coronavirus. Unfortunately, it was due to other causes. I don't want to lose anyone associated with baseball or not. But as I speak these words, we're up to about 89,000 fatalities in the United States and 312,000 fatalities worldwide. And although the overall rate of deaths is headed downwards now, don't forget that because of the way the disease itself works, that rate is always trailing behind what's actually going on. We'll find out how many people were really sick now in a few weeks, and we can hope that everything we've been told about epidemiology and just the basic way that the virus communicates itself from person to person was incorrect and that it will end up dying off instead of spreading further even as we open things up. But until we know that fact for certain, and again, that's a little ways out, we have to keep things slowed down and separated so that folks like Art Howe don't have to worry about infection. Because he's Art Howe. And by that, I don't mean that he is a mid-range celebrity ex-ball-playing personality, but just that Somebody somewhere surely loves him. He has a family, he has friends, and he has himself, and he has the same right to life that we all do, and certainly zygotes do. I've never understood that particular argument that life begins at conception, but somehow it is far less important once the batter quickens and you have an actual fully formed person there, and that's because adults and elderly adults in particular are not cute, but babies are. And I don't mean to diminish anybody's argument, but for gosh sake, I mean, let's just be consistent. And it doesn't seem like we're going to do that. And I don't mean about that argument, but about the social distancing, about keeping things shut down. We're learning something about our leadership for certain, but we're also learning something about human nature and the limits of generosity, because we're all just shaved monkeys who dropped out of the trees, and shaved monkeys are not hierarchical. They don't like rules. If we were dog-like pack animals, it would be a little different. The lead dog would say, roof, stay inside, roof, and we'd sit, we'd stay inside. But right now, the closest thing we have to a lead dog is sending a lot of mixed, well, he's not sending mixed signals, he's just saying, roof, go out, go play, roof. And so a lot of us are doing that, and then the rest of us are in this confusing position of having to advocate for something that is no longer viable if not everyone participates in it. And you know it's no fun. Have you seen the three little pigs where two out of three pigs just go off and party, and the third pig, literally practical pig in the Disney cartoon, is building his brick house, and he has to lecture everybody else in the voice of Goofy because that's who voiced him. So that's kind of counterintuitive that the guy who normally goes gorsh is also the guy saying, be prepared. Actually, there's a later Goofy cartoon. I thought Pinto Colvig was gone by the time this came out. He was the voice, but it's called Goofy's Glider, in which Goofy says, I'm brave but I'm careful. And that is a rule to live by. You can be both brave and careful. And though Goofy didn't say this, I'm sure he wouldn't mind my adding considerate of others. But shaved monkeys don't like rules. They are solitary hunter-gatherers. And that hasn't been true for something like 7,000 or 8,000 years, but we just haven't gotten the idea yet. It's every shaved monkey for his or herself. And this idea 
that we are only in life as individuals and not as any sort of community brought back to me an old Yankee story. And instead of telling this story sequentially, let me just give you the bottom line of it, the end, and then we can circle back and revisit the details on the front page of the May 20th, 1929 edition of the New York Daily News. There is a large photograph of a crowd looking on as policemen load a corpse into a van. The ground is wet. Some of the grim looking watchers are under umbrellas. The Macombs Dam Bridge overlooks the scene and the caption says tragedy of stupidity. Heartless crowds trampled two persons to death and seriously injured 30, mainly small boys, in wild stampede yesterday to escape cloudburst at Yankee Stadium. Riot was absolutely unnecessary, police say, story on page two. Now, the beginning. It was meant to be a doubleheader against the Boston Red Sox. The Yankees were very good. The Red Sox the opposite, about as bad as they ever were. The Yankees were going for their third straight championship. The season would show that they weren't quite as good as they had been, almost, but the A's were better. The Red Sox were miserable. It's not an exaggeration to say that the Red Sox had zero stars at this time. The Yankees played five future Hall of Famers that day, Earl Coombs, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Tony Lazari, and Bill Dickey. This is the Red Sox lineup, and I have to confess that, as you know, these sorts of obscure details are my whole life, but I'd have to work to familiarize myself with most of these players. Leading off Jack Rothrock center field, Hal Ryan shortstop batting second, Phil Tote at first base, Elliot Bigelow right field batting cleanup, he's some kind of T, Doug Tate in left field, Bobby Reeves at third base, Bill Regan at second base, the catcher was Charlie Berry batting eighth, and the pitcher was Jack Russell a terrier. The one who jumps out at me is Reeves, a one-time hot prospect who was sent from the Senators to the Red Sox to undo an earlier trade in which Washington gave up a very good player, Buddy Meyer, and then regretted it. I'll tell this story some other time, but it was sort of like if the Red Sox called the Dodgers right now and said, you know, we really screwed up. Mookie Betts is so good, and somehow we just weren't thinking that through. Would you trade him back just, you know, to be nice? And the Dodgers were like, yeah, sure, you can have him. At this time, Yankee Stadium sat about 63,000. The bleachers could hold about a third of that. It's kind of shocking to think about the fact that we're talking about a date 18 years after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, and New York City fire codes didn't prohibit the Yankees from overselling the building and just letting people stand around wherever they wanted to. This was not one of those games. But it had a specific hazard that was unique to the Yankees in their building, something fire codes would have helped with as well. The lower right field portion of the bleachers was a hot ticket. It was referred to casually or popularly as Ruthville because it was the nearest spot to where the babe played and it was also where he knocked most of his home runs. This section tended to become disproportionately crowded and as we'll see there weren't enough exits officially on this day. There were about 9,540 people, mostly young boys, in the lower right field bleachers closest to the field that day. The opener was a typical game. The Yankees started a veteran swingman, Fred Hymick, against the no-name lineup I just gave you, and he held the Red Sox to two hits and no runs. Meanwhile, in the first inning, Coombs walked. He was picked off, but the Red Sox, being who they were at the time, fumbled the play, and Coombs made it all the way around to third. The shortstop dropped the ball or let it get away from him. Ruth drove him in by pulling a grounder to second. Two innings later, he led off with a home run, and Gehrig, coming up next, drove a ball deep into the endless left center field gap and circled the bases before the Sox could get it in 
for back-to-back home runs. That put the Yankees up 3-0 at the end of three. The problem started right after that. It had been a beautiful spring day, but in the fourth inning, the sky began to darken, and there was a light downpour that seemed to suggest that a bigger storm was coming. Some large fraction of the Ruthville crowd got out of their seats and started hovering around one of the exits, thinking that they could watch the game, but if the skies really opened up, they could instantly be out of the rain. I'll tell you more about that exit in a second, because it's key to the story. But another key is that the reason they didn't commit to just leaving, thinking that the game was about to be called, was that Ruth and Gehrig were due up again in the bottom of the fifth, and they didn't want to miss that. So the half inning began. Mark Koenig tapped out to the first baseman. Ruth's appearance was anticlimactic. He, too, tapped out to first unassisted, and now it was Gehrig's turn. As he stepped in, the skies just turned black. There was a lightning bolt somewhere very near the stadium and a loud crack of thunder. A woman screamed, and the skies let loose with a heavy downpour that drove the remaining bleacherites out of their seats. Imagine being there. And remember that all of the following is happening simultaneously. There were two exits from the bleachers. If you were facing the field, on the right there was a large one, or more accurately a wide one, where tickets were taken. And on the left, there was a small narrow exit that led to a set of 14 stairs, which dropped about 10 feet to a narrow dirt passage under the stands, bounded by chicken wire fences backed by wooden 2x4s, which then led out of the ballpark at 157th Street and River Avenue. Nothing but class for Yankee Stadium patrons. This was the exact right field corner of the ballpark. At about the spot, the right field grandstand met the bleachers. I'll put a picture up in the Facebook group. I have a few. The space measured about 12 feet wide by 35 feet long. Not that big, and it had no lights. Beyond those fences on either side of it was a slight drop into a kind of no-man's land under the grandstand. Consider that left-handed route out of the bleachers more of an emergency exit, an overflow valve. It was not designed to move masses of people. As the rain came down, the portion of the Ruthville crowd that had still been in its seats split into two groups, some bolting for the larger right-hand exit, some for the smaller left-hand one. There were policemen stationed at both exits. For some reason, and this was obfuscated at the time because no one wanted to be responsible for what happened, the cop at the larger gate refused to open it and instead insisted that that portion of the crowd turn around and head for the smaller gate. The fans who had been crowding there since the 4th had just started moving down the stairs into the darkness under the stands, and they weren't moving quickly. They were already being crowded forward by the portion of the fans who had chosen that exit to begin with. Then the fans who had been redirected by the cop smashed into that group, and they all went surging violently forward and pitched downward into the abyss. The vanguard fell, wrote Martin Summers in the Daily News. Screams of women and boys mingled with a deeper roar of protest from the men who shoved pushed and rolled over them. Panic-stricken boys and women were strewn out as human carpet beneath the helpless mad flow from behind. Many punched, bit, scratched, and kicked as their arms cracked and were twisted into grotesque positions by the churning rioters. The rain beat down relentlessly as the now-terrified fans piled up layer on layer the majority tossed along horizontally on the heaving bodies of those beneath. 
the policeman at the gate, at that gate, the smaller gate, drew his gun and threatened to shoot to stop the rush, but the crowd surged anyway, knocking the gun from his hand and trampling him. I never saw such a mad rush before, said one victim. I was sitting in the right field bleachers with my son, Thomas, when the storm came up and the rush began. Almost at once, I was pushed forward and knocked down. There must have been a half a dozen people under me, all shouting and screaming. Clothing was being torn from people's bodies. I saw one girl there with all her outer clothing stripped off. My son was torn from my grasp, but later I found him. The people who had been towards the front of the line were indeed thrown to the bottom of a pile of hundreds, if not more people, and yet they were still flooding into that narrow alley, which was now bottled up. It had to burst, and it did. The chicken wire that formed the alley ruptured, and luckily for some people that happened because they went falling away into the puddles under the stands. Those who fell forward were still in the path of the mob, and that mob went right over them. Since Game 1 was a legal game, as soon as the downpour started, the umpire just said, Game called, that's it. But the players hadn't gone anywhere. They were waiting out the rain in the dugout because, as far as they knew, there was still a Game 2 to be played. You couldn't see the right field corner from where they were sitting, and they didn't know what had happened right away. It was only when a probationary policeman named Elias Gottlieb, who was off for the weekend from the police academy and was just taking in the game as a fan, staggered to the dugout carrying a 14-year-old boy named Morris Lerner, who was unconscious. It later turned out he had severe bruises about the head and was suffering from a broken hip, that the players understood that something had gone very wrong. When Babe Ruth saw Gottlieb with the child, he ran out to home plate or just stuck his head above the dugout, reports differed, and shouted through cupped hands. This is how it was reported. There has been an accident. Will any physicians in the crowd please come to the club offices at once? It being Babe Ruth, I imagine it was earthier than that, but be that as it may, he and the policeman went up the tunnel to the clubhouse. Gottlieb, a hero of the day, went back out to the bleachers and carried another 15 of the injured back to the clubhouse with him. An additional 25 victims were also brought to the clubhouse, which became, for the moment, kind of an emergency room. About a dozen doctors who happened to be in the ballpark that day answered the babe's call and did their best to stabilize the victims or save them despite the total lack of medical facilities and equipment. Simultaneously, I think I'm understanding this correctly, an African-American woman named Louise Underwood, and I don't know if she was a nurse or just a good Samaritan, took it upon herself to organize another emergency facility in the right field ladies room until the ambulances could come. It took eight in all to take the victims to Lincoln Hospital. A woman was brought into the clubhouse while all this was going on. Her chest was crushed into her backbone and all her ribs were smashed. She was so battered her skin had turned black, but she was still alive. They put a blanket on the floor of the shower and laid her body on it. It was only by searching her purse that they realized she was a 17-year-old girl. The babe got down on the floor of the shower with her. As Ruth cradled her head, the New York Herald Tribune reported, on the rubbing table where Hoyt, Pennock, Pipgrass, and the other pitching stars are wont to lie under the massaging fingers of Doc Woods, the Yankee trainer sat a boy who looked as if his left arm had been torn from its socket. 
The young woman's name was Eleanor Price. She was a student at Hunter College in New York. She was studying geology and wrote for the school paper and was described as an avid baseball fan. Eleanor had brought her younger brother, who was 14, to the game as a Sunday treat. They had actually originally planned to go that Saturday, but the boy had gotten a better offer from his friends, and so she agreed to push it out for a day. It turned out to be a fatal act of generosity. She died in Babe Ruth's arms. Her brother, George, suffered a concussion and other injuries, but was released from the hospital the same day. There was one other known fatality, Joseph Carter, a 60-year-old truck driver who lived in East 128th Street. Police reinforcements had arrived just in time to prevent things from being worse. Standard New York City Police Department procedure at the time was to send extra patrolmen to the ballpark at the first sign of rain. So they had already arrived by the time the big downpour began. The policemen waded into the tangle on the stairs under the bleachers, pulling body from body so that those at the bottom of the pile could breathe. Some of them were in pretty bad shape when we got them out, one of the policemen said. Their clothes were torn to shreds, hats, shoes, coats, and bags were missing. They were hysterical from the pushing and from fright. Some of them thought they were still in the midst of it and wanted to fight back. They had all been pretty well trampled on. There weren't enough stretchers, so the police used pieces of tarpaulin to carry the injured away. And despite that early intervention, there were still over 60 injuries, many of them serious. There were no facilities for treating the injured at the ballpark. We tried to save a number of small boys, one doctor said. They were unconscious, suffering from exposure, broken bones, cuts, internal injuries, and beating. Most of the physicians had to take their coats off and place them on the floor so that we could give the injured something to lie on. It required the ambulances 20 minutes to arrive. Due to the absence of remedies such as adrenaline, there was grave danger of a number of others dying. The injuries ranged from shock to broken ribs to fractures of the skull. Most of them were boys aged 10 to 15 years old. A look at the casualty lists turns up four fractured skulls suffered by an 11-year-old named Leon, a 13-year-old named Milton, Jose Hormandez, 22, and a 26-year-old named James. Leon was listed as being in critical condition, but I'm pretty sure he got through it and lived until 2000, not the age, the year. Anticipating Aaron Judge by 90 years, one Charles Phillip, 32, suffered a broken rib and a perforated lung. We already talked about Morris Lerner, 14, with his scalp contusions and fractured hip. Sidney Jacobs, 11, fractured pelvis. Edward Devlin, 14, fractured leg. Josephine Gorf, fractured right leg. There are aspects of this that are hard to visualize because I'm not quite sure what parts of Yankee Stadium they refer to or a rational ballpark in any place in any year. I want to tell you about them, though, because they contributed to the injuries. For example, some of the fans further up in the bleachers saw the bottleneck at the little gate at the bottom and decided to jump into the space between the bleachers and the grandstand. It was a fall of about 20 feet, and they were badly injured. The Herald Tribune said, Those who took that method of escaping the crash fell on rocks. Rocks in a ballpark, like jagged boulders. That's what I'm imagining. And then there's this from the New York Times report on the disaster. The crowd was swept nearly 100 feet down the runway, across a little areaway that separates the bleachers from the grandstand, and into a wire gate. 
The gate went down like brittle candy. A dozen men and boys pitched headlong into a pit ten feet deep, which was immediately back of the gate. They landed in a heap on sacks of sawdust and refuse. And then they go on to say how the police showed up to stop additional fans from falling into this ten-foot-deep pit. Why the hell was there a pit on the other side of the gate? And which gate are we talking about? I suspect that they're referring to the same gate I've been telling you about all along, but none of the other reports mention a 10-foot pit possibly filled with bears or snapping alligators. I, I don't know. It's very hard to figure out what's being said there. But the stadium starts to sound less like a venue for amusement and more like a literal death trap. As I said before, no one wanted to be responsible for this, not the police and not the Yankees. The commissioner of police, Whalen, who was on the scene right from the beginning, had concluded that very second, basically, this seems to be one of those unfortunate occurrences which could not be helped. There is no provision which could have been made in order to avoid such a thing. After investigating for literally a nanosecond, the Bronx DA concurred. All I can say is that the stadium is adequately policed and well provided with exits. There is no baseball park in the country that can be emptied more quickly. And of course, Yankees owner Jacob Rupert agreed with him too. It is just one of those unfortunate things that cannot be helped. We took every precaution we could. It was understandable that the Yankees were defensive because they knew what would happen next. The estates of Price and Carter, as well as 32 other victims, sued them for almost a million dollars. The case went to trial, and in 1932, the Yankees were found guilty of negligence, but so were the victims for stampeding. An appeal resulted in the victims' contributory negligence being set aside. It's natural to want to get out of a thunderstorm, so a new trial was ordered, but before it got very far along, the Yankees settled for $45,000 total. It was reported that several suits were still pending. I assume those were settled as well. The second contest that day was, of course, never played. The Yankees left town to play an exhibition at Yale Field in New Haven. They'd return to the stadium to play two again against the Senators the day after. Yankees general manager Ed Barrow, who is known to personally police the stands for women smoking cigarettes, still blamed the victims. It was just a case of the crowd losing control of itself in the rush to get out of the rain. When those in front fell, the others were pushed on by the jam behind. A bleacher crowd, too, is usually made up of young fellows, and there probably was a lot of shoving and fooling, as youngsters will do, before they realized how serious the matter was. He said he'd be willing to make changes to the ballpark, but in this instance, I know of no alterations to make. Fortunately, Babe Ruth was a little more savvy in his media relations. Tell those youngsters to cheer up and get well quick, for I am going to miss them in the right field bleachers, he shouted from New Haven. I want the name and address of every kid that was hurt. I'll see that they get rain checks anyway, and maybe more. I love you kids more than anybody. Almost. Had to throw that qualifier in there. Ed Barrow was right in this one sense. When any large group of people forgets that we survived this beautiful but harsh world as a society, not as individuals, when they all think at once, I am getting out of the rain now, or going into it, the other guy be damned, people get hurt, they die unnecessarily. Imagine them, there alone, looking up at the underside of the bleachers, shivering in shock, the lost hats and shoes and pocketbooks scattered all around them. That's a fate we all risk when we stop caring about each other. In the old days, 
You might die alone in the woods or in the jungle, and today we might die alone on the city streets or in the hospitals. I started this story by quoting from a newspaper who called the incident at the stadium a tragedy of stupidity. It wasn't that. There is nothing stupid about wanting to get out of the rain. It's a basic instinct for self-preservation that probably goes back to before those shave monkeys dropped out of trees. It was a tragedy, not of that, but of selfishness. And I wonder if you really look closely at all the humanitarian disasters that you might name, how many of them could be boiled down to that same root cause. And speaking of selfishness, Let's finish on a lighter note, because children don't always realize when they've been given a gift and shouldn't ask for more, when it might be rude or inconsiderate to demand a second piece of cake. As you know, Babe Ruth always made time to visit children in the hospital, and this incident was no different. He went after the Yankees came back from New Haven. It sounds like a fairly perfunctory visit. He just moved from bed to bed, saying a few words and dropping off a signed ball for each kid. One did ask him, by the way, in the cliché way of the movies, to hit a couple of home runs for him in the next game, and unlike the way it would happen in the movies with the babe saying, you bet I will, Junior, do you promise me, Junior, if I do it, that you'll try to walk again for me, for the babe? You bet I will, babe, you bet I will. He just mumbled, I'll try, which is more sensible. How are you going to avoid disappointing people otherwise? And he didn't, by the way. He went one for eight with a triple in the doubleheader against the Senators. He did hit one against the Red Sox in the third game after, up in Boston. Maybe he should have just given a range to those kids. I will, based on my current performance, sometime in my next 15 to 20 at-bats, okay? But back to the children's ward at the hospital, where Ruth had taken some of his precious time off to visit these kids who had been hurt for wanting to see him. But one of them wanted more. He asked, hey, why isn't Gehrig here? Where's Lou Gehrig? And Ruth clearly put out that he wasn't enough, answered, up in Scarsdale. And with that, I have said my piece for today. May we all survive to meet again, if not next year in Jerusalem, then up in Scarsdale, where Lou and Eleanor Gehrig dwelt. And the next time you're allowed to visit the plastic recreation of Yankee Stadium that squats in the Bronx these days, Spare a thought for Eleanor Price and Joseph Carter, okay? I'll be right back with the delightful David Roth. You're delightful, too. I really feel that way. At ease, soldiers. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
My next guest is a former writer and editor for the original Deadspin, not New Coke Deadspin. He still remembers some guys whenever anyone asks him to, whether in Cooperstown or on YouTube, and is currently batting out columns for the New Republic. He's proving he's his own man by keeping his pandemic beard closely trimmed. He's the sports humanist David Roth. How are you, David? I'm very good. Thank you. That's uh, that's all well said. I was worried my beard wouldn't get some shine. <laughs> well, I've just let mine go completely. It looks like a fright wig with a mouth. And I've, I've just never had the leeway to see what would happen if I just, you know, went complete pioneer Unabomber. It's not flattering, I have to yeah, admit. Yeah, that was, I let mine go longer than I ever had. And I, I, I knew that it looked weird and felt weird and was kind of like bristly and, and gray and stuff. But, you know, I can't help that. But I got the go ahead from my wife to basically like, I was going to shave it. Because it was clear that she didn't appreciate the fact that, like, if I drank water and gave her a kiss, then I would just be wet. It was bad. And I understand that. And I respect that so much. And I was going to shave it. And she was like, no, no, go ahead. Let it get weird. And I did let it get weird for, like, another week. And then at some point, she was like, I think it's happened. Like, I think it's become weird. And I was like, all right. And I wouldn't have known. No, I feel the same way. As someone, though, and I'm curious if this affects you, too, this is purely artificial peer pressure in a way. As someone who has watched a lot of sports programming in the New York area, I don't think they run these anymore, but they did for years. The Keith Hernandez, Walt Frazier ads about the beer hair dye for men only, I think it was called. Yeah, just for men. And there, there were all these scenarios in these ads where a guy would go to hit on a girl, which is not a market either of us are in right now. No. But still, they would show this guy getting shot down by this girl because he had this professorial streaked with gray beard, which I'm afraid I do have. It's actually streaked with quite a bit of white, yeah. which is, is a weird thing. And they would say, oh, no play for Mr. Gray. Yeah. You remember these ads very well. <laughs> well, because as someone who has had a beard for years and had some gray in it going back to when I was like 30, I was traumatized by them. I felt that I was being singled out. And so now I have this self-image of like, I must look like grandpa. And I wonder if you feel the same way if you if you let it grow out and look in the mirror. A little bit. I mean, I was trying to come up with more appealing analogs than like the guy getting stunted on by Clyde Frazier and Keith Hernandez in the Just for Men ad. But also like, as I recall, the guy's beard, it, it looked pretty good. It looked like my high school English teacher's beard. It looked like Mr. McKeon's beard. And I think right. that was, that was solid. For mine, it just was, it, it, my main issue was that it didn't look like intentional in any way. Not that the color of it was necessarily like off-putting. Like I've had a little bit of gray hair for a while and you know, I, I try not to worry too much about, about how I look, but it, mostly I just looked blurry. Like, it didn't <laughs> look—it covered my face evenly, and, you know, there was some unevenness in terms of color or whatever. But mostly it just—I it. guess maybe it was the fact that I've mostly seen myself when I've seen myself in, like, little Zoom windows during conversations with people for work or pleasure— and in all of those instances, I was just sort of like, either the lighting in this room is really bad, or like, your face isn't as distinct <laughs> as it should be. And I have a kind of a dark apartment. So, I mean, it's not to say that it was 100% that my facial features were becoming indistinct. Well, it's even. possible. It's... Yeah. I, I mean, it's, <laughs> certainly it's like, of all the, the weird medical happenings in the world right now, like, that would be a fairly benign one if they were just like, I don't know, I don't see it as much as I used to. Like, if that was what was happening to me, I guess I'd be okay. Your edges are blurring and fading into the background as as kind of a literalization of what has happened to so many of us. Yeah, I like it. If I'm, I've become indistinct. 
I'm really curious about something because I think remembering some guys with you would be really awesome. But since we're friends, I want privileged remembering, which means that once this is all over and I I don't know if this will sound suggestive or dirty in some way, but (laughs) would you come over and we can just remember some guys in private, like on the couch, maybe? Yeah, I would love to do a a, a private session. Sure. I actually uh, do a lot of my business as privates. (laughs) That sounds bad. Yeah. I mean, I I liked doing it. when we were doing the live deadcast back in the day, we did one in Chicago and it was fun. And there were like people came up and watched us tell our jokes and then had drinks with us after. And it was a great time. And one guy did bring like a, like a cello pack of like 88 Donruss and was like, Hey, come over here. Do you want to open these with me? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure, man. Like wait, I, I don't get asked this often, but like, I don't see any reason why not. And we did. But it was like other people kind of like gathered around and were like, oh, yeah, Gary Gaetti. And, you know, like that's cool. But it was I would be happy to do it with you. Just just two guys in sort of a more of a dude's rock scenario. It would be risky doing it with strangers because I could see this scenario where somebody would be like, I couldn't find any old gum, but I got this gas station sushi for you. Yeah, (laughs) I know you like bad things. So you didn't know who Broderick Perkins was. You'll have to chew the tuna roll. Yeah, that is way riskier. I was lucky that this was like a pack from an era where I would have like known most of the guys. I had uh, the baseball writer and former mayor of Cooperstown, Jeff Katz, on an early episode of Remember Some Guys. And I was in the host role, and he was remembering stuff. And it was all cards from the 81 Fleer set. And he wrote a book about the 81 season, the strike-shortened season. And knew everything about everybody in that set. He was at no risk of having to to chew gum. But if I had, I mean, like, I remembered a few of the guys, you know, like in terms of like the ones that stuck around into my actual sort of life as a fan. But that nightmare of just having it be just one blurry mustachioed guy in like the pirate's cake box hat after another (laughs) and just having to keep feeding gum into my maw. It's scary to think about. One Doug Froble after another. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know. Again, like, that would be a pretty funny nightmare, you know, because I'd probably... <laughs> you have to assume your unconscious would be making guys up. And so you wake up and be like, I don't know, was there really, like, a Procrustes Mustardo at some point? <laughs> the Productive Outs guys who I did, I have done some, like, remembering some guy stuff with them on video, really good dudes, uh, musicians and, and baseball fans, are good about making up like fake transaction names around spring trading. And so they will be like, you know, the Blue Jays have reassigned Wander Manchego to the minor league camp. <laughs> <laughs> like it's those names in general are, it's all we've got at this point, but the, thankfully they don't stop. So instead of waiting to get to our fun Mets tidbit for this no. visit, I want to, I want to start <laughs> there. Last time you were here, we talked about how the Wilpons wanted to sell the team without selling it. Someone else wanted to give them a billion dollars, but they'd still get to run it, or they expected someone to give them a billion dollars, but they'd still get to run it. I don't know if it was clear then, at least it wasn't to me, that they want to sell the team but retain SNY, i.e. the part that's actually worth something. Yeah, if that's the, the Wilpon touch. I mean, it's why <laughs> it's so difficult for them to make a deal now, beyond the fact that they're idiots, which is just that like the... The idea that you can do that, remember when um, 
McCourt like spun off all the valuable parts about the Dodgers into like little private LLCs that he owned. Yes. And then the team itself was just like ostensibly was losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year because all it was was the payroll. The Mets are doing that, but unironically. Like, it's not the sort of thing where they're trying to get over on anyone or anything like that. Like, I think that they're just sort of like, oh, well, the TV thing makes money and the team doesn't. So, like, we'd much rather sell the team than the TV thing. I'm sure you can understand. Anyway, price tag is 2.6 bill. (laughs) And we get to run it. And this, like, otherwise unemployable fail son of our owner. I mean, they had, they were attached to another seller since we, or another buyer uh, since we spoke last, which was A Rod. <laughs> but apparently that, that is by the boards. Presumably, A Rod was interested in, in purchasing both the profitable and less profitable parts of the team. And that might have been a deal breaker for the Wilpons. It's very strange. And I don't, I mean, I guess there's some, if you were a, a very rich person who wanted to say that he had this toy that he owned, but you'd also look like the sucker of the century just getting the lease on the building and the uniforms. I can't imagine that they really even thought that somebody would say yes to it. I mean, it's just baffling beyond, like, even by Wilpon standards, it's baffling, just in the sense that, like, why would you think that anyone would do that? Like, do you think that, like, these billionaire private equity goblins that are, like, the only people that could afford to buy a team are also somehow dumber than you? Like, at least they can do math. Fred Wilpon made his money by accident. The buildings he bought as tax shelters became hugely valuable. The buildings that he tried to develop on his own did not. Where do you get the idea that somehow, like, not to, to gas up Stephen Cohen or whatever. I mean, these guys are, like, obviously the worst that our culture could, you know, has produced. But, like, where do you get the idea that you, Fred Wilpon are smarter than that guy. It's very strange. And like you said, there's this class, right, that makes money on transactions. And I don't mean baseball transactions, but on financial transactions, or they they do leverage buyouts, which are something that just shouldn't exist. They should not be legal because all they really do is, is destroy jobs sort of in this parasitic, cancerous kind of way. And then they get to turn around and buy baseball teams and operate them in the same way, which is the strangest thing. Like, try very hard not to provide value to the customer, but at the same time get the bragging rights and the skybox, and that seems to be enough. It's a weird thing. And at the risk of getting political early in the show or getting political at all, one of the things that I I know this is naive for me to say, but one of the things that's really fascinating to me in terms of Donald Trump trying to run for re-election and like asking the Ukraine for help and trashing on other people is it would be neat to have a leader in any field, really, who instead of just trying to get over on people actually did stuff, actually had infrastructure week and then went before the voters and said, hey, here's a list of stuff I did. Look upon my works, you mighty and vote for me. Right. It's actually easier than the other way is the strange thing. Like it's much easier to do it the right way and like build 100 bridges and and maybe not post offices. That was the old way of doing it, but schools or what have you and do that than it is to cheat. Yeah. And yet I think it's like on principle now, it's just like sort of that's like old fashioned or tacky or like kind of, I don't know, it's, it's not as disruptive as fucking everything up, hiding it, lying about it, being exposed for your fuck up and lies, and then accusing somebody else of being jealous of your success, which is kind of that's the new way of being successful is actually failing, but being so wealthy that you can't get in trouble for it. 
it's very frustrating in this case too because it's again at the risk of getting too political or too morose like it's costing people their lives right that they chose to do it this way for two months people did the right thing people actually like americans stepped up and wanted to do right by their community and by each other and they did all the things they were supposed to do and the people in power and at every level did nothing and now we just have to eat shit because they're like oh well you know whatever we didn't try but also like in the end like we were also very stressed out so it was hard for us very very difficult for me to to credit any of that what's very strange to me about that and we can bring it back to sports this way yes is that there is a significant overlap and i see this whether in my twitter feed or yours or or other people in our, our field or even the comments at bp when someone writes an article about this there is an overlap between sports fans and maga hat wearing people as you would expect because that's yeah. a like you know whatever 30 to 40 percent of of the public so clearly there is but sports is so results oriented so if you sign a crap quarterback and your team goes two and, and 14 and the fans are obviously always very vocal and very disgruntled. If you sign Eduardo Nunez to be your cleanup hitter, you can't say, well, the Chinese made me sign Eduardo Nunez. You yep. can't say Joe Biden made me sign Eduardo Nunez. It just doesn't work in our field or in this area because 62 and 100 is 62 and 100. Although there is a way in which it does work, right? Okay. Which is that, it, I mean, which is you saw the Sixers do it. You saw the Astros do it. The idea is that basically if you can tell people, like if you basically ask fans to choose between I'm going to do a bunch of like managerial boss shit and it might work in a few years or it might not, but you have to understand that we're getting more efficient and we're refining our processes and we're building an organization that will be competitive years down the line. And that's what's important is sustainable competitiveness or whatever the buzzwords are at the moment. If you tell people that and then you make the product worse and maybe you don't charge them more, maybe you charge them more at a slightly lower rate, it really does seem like people will follow that. You know, I think once you realize that in baseball, I think it, it's always been owners that didn't try. And I mean, we talked about this many times in the past or just like the way that teams, the bad teams were in the 80s and stuff like that, where you're just sort of like the Indians took like two generations off from giving a shit about anything. Like, and it's impossible to map any attempt to progress as an organization basically for two decades. Right. They were more focused on leaving at times than right. they were. Yeah. But that's, that's what it was. It was like some, it was like a rich guy's feud or whatever, but there wasn't this sense of like, there was even, you know, Kansas city did this where it was like, they hire a GM. He's like, we're going to be bad for a while, but trust the process. They're bad for nine years. Then they're competitive for three years. And then they're bad for five more years. And that guy is going to have his job forever. And I think as long as you as you say it right or you spin it right, I mean, at some point, the person that hires and fires is the owner. And that's the, the part of it that's kind of like, I think it's it's where people, it's where the results-oriented stuff meets other cultural pathologies in kind of an unhelpful way. The difference is that if a Dayton Moore says, trust the process, and we're going to have a five-year plan in the old Soviet style where we're going to go... 50 and 112 for half that time. But at the end, we might get a World Series. That's one thing. But it's different 
to experience what we're experiencing now where the Dayton Moore of us all says that 50 and 112, it is not real. It didn't happen. We were actually, I don't care what the standings in the paper says, we were 112 and 50. Yeah, that's that's well said. I mean, I think also the other thing that I was thinking about during the little technological blooper interregnum there is that it might not be fair to compare it to the Royals, that like really what we're getting is like what the Pirates are doing, where you're not trying to get better. You're consciously sort of like feather betting the profits for like the, the management and stuff like that. But then you're going into the season saying, we're trying to win. We think we've got a good chance. It's hard to know what will happen. And then when the very obvious and predictable outcome happens, you're like, you know, we caught some bad breaks, but we like what we have. And who could have known that Gregory Polanco would be hurt and underperform a little bit? <laughs> And that, like, whatever fucking Jung Ho gang would get arrested five times in March. He just can't. Do you remember the time that Manny Ramirez got pulled over for speeding or driving the wrong way down a one-way street or something? And so the cop writes him a ticket. Oh, is that illegal now? Yeah, well, for Manny Ramirez it is. (laughs) And then he he immediately did an illegal K-turn or something, and so they pulled him over five feet from where they had first pulled him over. That's a Manny story, too. That's like one of those... There's all these stories. I used to treasure them when I was growing up reading like the Baseball Hall of Shame was like a really formative book for me about all these like yes. kind of loopy characters of the 1920s, you know, where it'd be like Dizzy Dean, like not understanding like how an umbrella worked or whatever. And you'd be <laughs> like, ah, it's probably not real, but like good for you, Ring Lardner. That's fun that you made something up. But like Nanny Ramirez, I think really like walked it like he talked it. It was like there's no story that you could tell about Manny Ramirez being a goofball that I wouldn't believe. There is a sense that, like, for players out of the Dominican Republic in some places, like, they really, in fairness to them, they have to effort a little bit to acculturate. And if you're, and back then, you know, there were no rules on this or the rules were flouted. So, you know, you sign somebody at 12, basically. Yeah. And there's a question of just sort of like how much education you get and how much socialization you really get. Well, but Manny was a, it was an American, though. Well, I mean, he okay. was drafted out of the, he was from like Washington Heights or some shit. Oh, you're right. Yeah. No, I mean, I know what you're saying. It's just like the, I I think that there's like, there's a cultural adaptation thing from Washington Heights too, but. Right. No, he was born in the Dominican. That's what I was thinking of. But you're right. He he came here earlier. I only know this because he was, I saw his draft pick cards when I was up in uh, Maine over Christmas. (laughs) Those great future stars cards of whom like no one ever worked out. Yeah. God, they took a very long position on Billy Joe Robideau and it didn't work out. My father-in-law got this, like, big, basically, I think, bought, like, some guy's card collection for, like, it was, like, you know, 15,000 cards for 20 bucks. And he wanted me to go through them and, like, set aside which ones were good. And I was, like, I thought that I would never be asked a question like this. But, yes, of course. And a lot of them, I mean, most of it is worthless because there are cards from the 90s and stuff like that. But there were a lot of those, like sort of like the draft pick cards or like set aside Bowman ones. Like whoever the kid was when it was a kid collecting the cards that that person, like they at least knew they were like, Oh, first round draft pick. That might be worth something. But like the, they really got let down by the front offices on that one. One of my closest friends and oldest friends had that same thought that he might've been that kid that you bought the box from for all I know, just middle age now. Mm -hmm. But he just decided one year, like, I'm going to corner the market on those future stars cards and those first round draft pick cards. So I remember he had like an entire wall of Greg Swindell's. And it's not that Greg Swindell was bad by any means. It worked out. But also, like, I think anything that tells a kid that Greg Swindell is like an investment product, <laughs> that's incorrect. 
again, like sort of creating that next generation of hedge fund managers kind of through the back door. Yeah. Well, I think that if there was like an element of that to collecting when, because I was at my period of peak interest as a card collector during that, that boom period of like the late 80s, early 90s. The die cut cut period, the the lenticular card period. Yeah, sort of, it was weird. It was like edging into that. But I think I mostly, the crazy products, like the fancy ones, the expensive packs, right. were after my time. I think like the most premium product I ever had was like Fleer Ultra, which had a little bit of like trace elements of gold foil on certain cards <laughs> to like enhance the experience of discovering a Jim Eisenreich card in your own hand. <laughs> but the idea at that time was that, like, because cards, it was a very, like, sort of, like, wishful thinking, but, like, especially, like, American child-brained wishful thinking thing where it was, like, people had noticed that a Honus Wagner T209 card or whatever was worth thousands of dollars and a Mickey Mantle 51 card was worth hundreds of dollars. And somehow from there that the next step was like ergo this Kevin Moss card is worth thirty dollars. <laughs> and when you're a kid, that seems like a lot of money, and yet like the reason those other things were worth money is that they were scarce and the way that baseball card companies responded to increased demand was by just blowing the roof off any idea of supply and having there be you know, there's hundreds of thousands of every card in those sets. Right. There's no way that they could be valuable. No, and that that happened too. In th- those same people, then moved into comic books and actually helped drive Marvel, which of course now is owned by Disney and and is this massively successful enterprise. But actually helped drive them into bankruptcy. And there was the first new Spider-Man number one for a, a while by Todd McFarlane. Now you get a new number one every two days. Mm-hmm. And there was an X-Men number one by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. And these things became worth quite a lot of money in a very short period of time, but they had print runs in the millions. Yeah. So where is the scarcity that's actually going to drive volume, which is what collectibles are made of? Yeah. That's what made Tops and other companies, too, start doing... Because they still... Most of the business is like, you can't just make, like, one of every card and then, like, you know, whatever, your Greg Gross is worth as much as your Mike Schmidt. Like, that's not a, a viable idea either. But that's why they started doing the parallels and the stuff that you were talking about, weird superfractors and holograms and some of them has got a swatch of the guy's uniform pants in it and some of them don't you know that like that was how they tried to do it but even there it's still like you have to make a lot of everything in order for the scarce things to be scarce and it's just not uh it's not an efficient business i don't know how you would do that with comic books because the whole point is to read them that inflation caused tops to create more product yeah more product but then they also were trying to create parallels and stuff like that because they didn't you know, at some point, it's it, a thing is just that thing. And so, like, if you have a card with, like, whatever, trying to think of uh, a good, like a Scott McGregor on it, <laughs> you know, good but not great, whatever, that, like, you need to create, in, instead of there being fewer of that card, you create different versions of it or parallels or one that's got an autograph on it or whatever. Of course, they didn't figure that out when Scott McGregor was with the Orioles. They figured it out in, like, I'm trying to think of who... Uh, who might have actually benefited from that? Wally Whitehurst or David West. Wow, those yeah. are names. Yeah, they are. Well, you know, thinking about thinking about guys whose cards I stockpiled because they were supposed to be the good prospects in the Mets system and then uh, didn't work out. No, well, pitchers are, are like that sometimes. Did David West come over in the Wally Backman trade or vice versa? I can't remember now. Other way. The other way. Oh, wait. Yeah, and then 
yeah, and then um, Whitehurst. They kept Whitehurst actually for a while. David West was part of like a big deal. Maybe he was part of the Viola deal. Yes, I think that's right. Wasn't it? So he might have come over. He might have come over with Ackman. Wasn't then. it true that Tops for a long time? At least this was the understanding when I was a kid that they would underprint intentionally. I feel like they were sued over this. That they, they yeah they short they short printed certain cards. So it was like the McDonald's Monopoly game where all the winning tickets went to China and all the losing bits stayed here. Yeah, it's true. And they did they did short print stuff to make it because if it was the sort of thing where you could make a set by by hand by ripping two boxes or whatever, then like presumably for them, then people wouldn't want to buy the set or they wouldn't buy as many packs or whatever. It is always a little sketchy, but they did. I think like I don't know if this was acknowledged on the checklist, but I remember it on the uh, like the spreadsheets that we would have when I was working there that they would have certain sections of it set up as like short print. And they weren't always the good players either. You know, and it would just be sort of like it, 10 cards out of 100, there'd be fewer of them. Okay. I remember 78, 79, like this is some of my earliest memories that like, and, and the Yankees were the hot team then because they were the Yankees and they were winning World Series and you could not get a Gidry card at that time, even though he had just won the Cy Young and that was the, the one that you could not find. Yeah, it's uh, sinister. I mean, it's I suppose it's good business, but that's like, this is real mean to the kids. night I saw upon the stair a little man who wasn't there he wasn't there again today oh how I wish he'd go away when I came home last night at three the man was waiting there for me but when I looked around the hall I couldn't see him there at all go away go away don't you come back anymore go away go away and please don't slam the door last you can slam the door if you want if you're really moved to it's good to get these feelings out of your system just make sure the cat wasn't about to follow you into the room because that could be tragic in 1899 a fellow named william hughes mearns wrote a poem called the little man who wasn't there and 40 years later it was adapted into a pop song by harold adamson and bernie hannigan it was a big hit number seven for many weeks by the Glenn Miller Orchestra. This version by Larry Clinton and his orchestra, vocal by Ford Leary, is superior, in my opinion, to Miller's with a vocal by Tex Beneke. Not that they didn't do a lot of great work. I just think this arrangement and this vocal are better. There's a word. You are entitled to your own opinion just as you are entitled to slam your own door. We all march to the beat of our own slam doors. After all, I picked this tune because I imagine this is where all the Ron Guidry cards went. Someone told them to go away, go away, go away. We will go away into a break, but worry ye not, we will return more rapidly than those cards did. And if you find one, don't put it into your bicycle spokes, okay? We need that. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you watch some of the Korean baseball games we're getting now. Just a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, I did too, just a little bit. But there's something wonderful about how it took all of American sports going away for us to notice that sometimes other countries play games and play them well. <laughs> it's a bit like Parasite winning Best Picture this year. And a lot of people, including, of course, the president going, what? Other countries make art? Yeah. Like, that can't be real. Look at how nice that house is. <laughs> they all live in <laughs> craters, right? They don't. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just like incredible but i will say that kbo is one of those things and i hope that espn will will keep doing this i know that they apparently when they initially approached kbo about running games and they were like well we're not going to pay you but people will watch it like like offering to pay a professional sports league in exposure is extremely 2020 shit but it also seems like the idea of like running these games late at night when you're not otherwise running stuff if it's cost effective i hope they'll keep doing it yeah, just put them on late at night, like the way that people used to do with like weird movies and stuff like that. It's not going to be for everybody. It's for like hardcores. But like if there was extra live baseball at one in the morning, like a nation of insomniacs and weirdos and also probably gambling addicts would be extremely grateful for that, I think. I agree with you. Here's the thing, though, like I watch some of that as you, as we both said, I watched some of the KBO stuff and all, all the games that were running that first day, I kind of jumped around to them, but I quickly gave up and it was good in this sense. And I bet you've had this experience. You go out for a walk in a park and there's a diamond there. And as you go by, there's a game going on. It could be little league. It could be beer league softball. It doesn't matter. It's still the game. So you stop mm-hmm. and watch for a bit. At least I do. I'm always. No, always. Same for me with basketball too. Absolutely. Right. Like I'm scouting or something, like I'm <laughs> fucking Branch Ricky with a mask over my face, right? Watching a bunch of nine-year-olds play. Exactly, but, but right. Yes. But even before that, even before the masks, just like, oh look, you know, the universe gave me a baseball game. Even though these people are are totally anonymous and probably not very good, but you get this wonderful bit of serendipity. But do you stay for all nine innings or even three? <laughs> you don't. I, if you if you do, they they would call the cops on you. <laughs> that is a little league game, friend. Keep it moving. Yeah, absolutely. My dad, I think, is a guy that will watch more outs than is appropriate, but that's like how he is. But he would like tell me that for a while. We'd be like, I was watching like a high school game or a JV game and like a shortstop had like a real, he was a good mover and he had a strong arm. And I was like, <laughs> neither like just some kid named like Jaden that like neither you nor I will ever meet. Like, thanks for the scouting report. My, my dad's stuffing Jaden and had about a 60. 60 glove, 60 run. But that's the problem, at least for me, in that sometimes I was listening in Korean, which I unfortunately don't speak, and I don't know who Mm -hmm. any of the guys are. There's no story that's attached to it for me the way there would be with the players that we're more familiar with. And it's not that I couldn't learn in time. I guess I could. I don't mean the language, but just who's who. And even the ESPN announcers don't really know. And so you're just kind of watching intramural baseball and the plot is missing. Yeah, that's definitely, I agree with that. I mean, it's part of, this felt 
chauvinistic and and silly but like it's why i was watching to see the the guys that i knew i was watching to see aaron altair and fucking tyler saladino and like no one that's ever watched a baseball game has watched it for those reasons (laughs) you know there was like something kind of funny about it but at the same time there was that was like the narrative that i knew was like this is a player that i like i watched play in the majors and now i'm watching him play someplace else but i you know it's weird like i hadn't thought about what was missing from it but certainly like even a game that I don't care about between two teams that I have no rooting interest in, if they're big league teams, I understand the sort of broader narrative that it fits into. Right. And I know it's the same thing with these teams and with these players. I just don't, it's not like a story that I'm familiar with. Well, I mean, even if it's a bad team, I don't, for some reason, I can't think of a single good player on a bad team right now, but like you're watching the Tigers in 1990 and you turn on that game and it's like John Doe, John Doe, Cecil Fielder, you, you know, coming up the next inning, you'll at least hang around to see if you can catch Cecil Fielder or hit a home run just because you tuned in at yeah, the right time. You'll know why you're doing it, which in this case, very much, you know, again, <laughs> Aaron Altair will be playing the role of Cecil Fielder tonight. <laughs> but also, yeah, it is. It's weirder that way. I was trying to read. You guys ran some good stuff at, at BP that was kind of like a guide to the the Western players that were there, which was for somebody who wants to know how Warwick Sawpold is doing, <laughs> that was invaluable for me. But there was also, you know, like you guys did the other stuff, which is basically like, here's what these teams are like. Here's sort of where they fit in the broader sort of culture of it and everything. And like, I read them and I found them interesting, but it didn't stick. I think maybe just because I already have so much garbage jammed into that shed. Right. That there wasn't room for me to like figure out which MLB team the Doosan Bears are. Well, like anything that you've never done before, and in this case has the added language barrier, it's hard to do it casually. Like you have to be immersed in it. And I I don't know what language that you took in high school, for example, but like what I, I took stupidly French because part of my background is French. And when they teach you to speak French, they teach it to you at the speed that you would have to learn something at. So it's je suis... And the conversation speed, as it turns out, when you meet an actual French person, is about one one thousandth of what it actually is. And so yeah. you meet somebody else and you're you're going, you know, you know, which way is a la bibliothèque? Where is the library? And they go. And I think that happens with this, too. You You need to download this whole knowledge set, but you can't just do it without committing to it wholly. What I settled on with the, the games, I've been meaning to DVR them and I haven't. But what I think I will, and the way I'm going to use them, if I use them in that way, will be just as something to have on in the background that is identifiably baseball. Right. And I think that paying more attention to it or knowing more about it than that, if the MLB season doesn't happen, it might be that I find it in me to to be there. But right now, I find that a lot of what I'm missing about sports in general, not just baseball, but late night NBA games or the sort of the playoffs was what would be happening there now is just the way that they sort of fit into the the shape of my life as I've lived it over 71 years here on earth <laughs> that the experience of like having a game on in the background or like watching half of a West Coast NBA game after my wife goes to bed but when I'm still not tired yet that like none of that stuff is essential to me like sometimes I'll pay more attention than others like if the game is good but having it there is part of what makes my life feel like my life and the absence of it has been much more painful and kind of like 
sharp than I would have expected it to be because like I never really cared about it, but like it fit into the sort of experience that I've had as somebody living in the life that I have. And without it, it's just like, there's, there's all this extra room. There's all this extra silence. And the only thing there is to fill it with is fucking news. Right. So, I mean, I don't, but again, I don't know, like even as background noise, you know, the one game that I watched was the one that started at like one twenty in the morning. I've watched plenty of things at one twenty in the morning <laughs> in my life. I don't remember any of them very well. And I don't, you know, and I never watched any of them super closely except for super troopers for whatever reason. I started watching that at midnight one time and I, I thought it was delightful and I watched it all the way through. <laughs> when I was in college, that the the late night lineup on some of the local stations, I just got into this habit of staying up very late because I, I never had or very rarely had morning classes. And so I'd be doing my homework or whatever and would just sail past the famous WPIX Trika, famous to me anyway, of the late action news followed by the Honeymooners, the Odd Couple, Star Trek. Then we get the yep. Twilight Zone. And oddly enough, the leader brought this up the other day. I would flip over to uh, NBC and get repeats of much older shows. Family, which was this Christy McNichols thing on a dramedy on ABC, and then Ben Casey and the Donna Reed show. And I would just watch those completely ironically. Yeah. I mean, I those shows that would be like the kind of like late night garbage that would be on, that stuff as a high school kid was essential to me. Not even just the sitcoms, but just like PIX was, that's Channel 11 for those in the greater tri-state <laughs> area, formerly New York's movie station. They would just run movies all the time. And they would run weird shit late at night and I'd record it. Not very little of it was good. But it would just be like seeing it in the listings, I remember, and being like, oh, that's cool. Like a movie I haven't seen before. And like, you know, I'd start watching it. And if it was bad, I wouldn't watch it. But I watched, I remember uh, Robert Altman's first movie, which is about like a fake moon landing. Okay. I think. And I remember watching that, recording it off Channel 11 with like all the like the commercials that would be airing on a movie that airs on a local station at three in the morning. So it was just like, do you need to? Like, it's a catheter, but, like, do you want a second catheter to put into it? Like, you clearly got a lot of problems if you're watching this right now. So, like, that's why, like, the catheter catheter is you know, a lot of shit. Was like, that was part of the texture of it and the experience of it. And I think, like, there's kind of, like, a flattening out of that now. Like, if you look at, like, any of the networks that could, like, take chances late at night, part of our cable package has IFC on it. And not a lot of independent films being aired on IFC just as a general rule. Kind of like there's not very much history on the History Channel either. Right. But it seems like the sort of thing where like late at night you could – they got rights to movies. They could do whatever they want. And it's like the weirdest they've gotten is running like Machete and Machete 2 back to back. <laughs> With all respect to Danny Trejo, I know a listener of the podcast and a friend of us both. Oh, of course. I think you can get weirder than that. I do feel like, though, watching that kind of programming, we passed a certain kind of test because it wasn't just catheter ads. It was endlessly repeating promos for Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, yeah. The volcano. Yes. there was a, That was just a normal thing. And I remember there were commercials for – this is extremely – there is no baseball chat that we're having right now, <laughs> but I'm going to keep it going. There were commercials for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes. Did you see those? Yes. Which were incredible. And they were sort of designed – they were like little morality plays – for kids. And then at the end, they were like brought to you by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Like you were supposed to approach your parents afterwards and be like, is it true that like sometimes if you're scared, but believe in yourself, you'll do the right thing? Like also, like, I think I'm a Mormon now. Like what was the, I don't know the game plan there, <laughs> but I appreciate that there was the attempt. 
I used to have this has again very no baseball chat, but one of the things I used to enjoy for exactly the wrong reason is there was this period my wife was a year ahead of me in college, so she was in graduate school while I was still completing my senior year of college and we would spend weekends together and then on Sunday night I would stay with her quite late and then end up driving home like two, three in the morning so I I could go to college the next day. And the only thing on the radio, and this is before satellite radio and that sort of thing where you it was like cable and you had all these choices, this was just whatever was local, was a Christian station. And at two in the morning, they would play these testimonials that were completely fictionalized. And what they were were stories of people who had utterly debauched their lives and then found God. That part wasn't interesting, the found God part. The part before it, the three-fourths before it was just pure pornography, just being yeah. broadcast over the radio. And it would be like, and then I had a threesome, and they would describe that. And you were supposed to say like, oh, that's terrible. And I would be like- this That sounds awful, man. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad you stopped doing that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's incredible. There's, <laughs> That is very much- I mean, I think that's that's always sort of the way that it goes, right? Like the part of it at the end where they give you the little uh, the reminder. There was, there was a magazine- it may still exist that I remember my friends and I reading when we first moved to New York, it was for sale on like every subway platform, you know, they have like the little newsstands right? and it was called feds, which stood for finally every dimension of the streets. (laughs) And it would be like interviews with like rappers, but then also with like incarcerated drug dealers. And the drug Lord guys were incredible because it was like, there was so much of what you were saying where it's like, Nobody ever ran the streets like me. I had like the helicopter would like land on my car. That was like how I would get to my car (laughs) was I would take my helicopter. But then even they at the end, it would be like, and that's why I think that like young kids should like choose a different path than me either because like no one could ever run the streets like I ran the streets or because they're like, it's bad. Like I'm now I'm in jail. It sucks actually. But like there was clearly was so much more zest being put into the part about the helicopter landing on the back of your Lincoln town car than there was into the whole like, so that's why I think you should like go to community college or learn a trade. I mean, that's really good fellas, right? Like that movie oh, is, yeah. a, is a testimony. The rest of my life is a schnook. Right. Exactly. He just gives you the honest ending. Like this sucks compared to what I was doing. Yeah. I watched, this was a, a real weird writer's block Dave move. I watched a bunch of interviews with Henry Hill, like hours of them. He was an interesting guy to to listen to because I had some idea that it was going to inform the lead of a story that I was writing. And like, it just never did. Like, it didn't make sense. So so I wound up writing something else. I don't even remember what the fuck it was about. Like, it wasn't Trump either. It was like some other thing. But I remember watching them and like he when he was talking about that time in his life and stuff like that, like he didn't remember it fondly. I think because of the fact that he was like, we were just all like fucked up on Coke all the time. And like everybody was just making mistakes constantly because we were really high. So it was weird that like, I mean, I guess it's a sort of hard Scorsese's often been accused of this. I think he's a guy with a real strong moral sense in his movies, but he's such a good filmmaker that like when he is showing you a bunch of guys like fucked up on Coke, impulsively murdering Frank Vincent (laughs) in a bar you know, it looks kind of cool. Like, it looks cool. You know, it's not the murdering Frank Vincent part doesn't seem cool, but the rest of it is just kind of like it's made so kinetically that and like and it's made with that sort of there's like a cocaine vibe to it, which is like that's the the more fun part of being on drugs anyway. 
Right. There's a juxtaposition that he does in films like that. And specifically with that incident, like on one hand, you have Henry Hill at the Copa where they're treating him like a celebrity. And then on the other, he's in the woods burying this guy. And so you, you have kind of the high and the low at the same time and they're inextricable. But like when I listened to those testimonials, it was much more linear. And so you had 30 minutes of a guy just having constant orgies and rolling in money and it sounded great. And then he found God. And now, again, he's he's Henry Hill. Now he's a, a schnook. So it doesn't come off quite the same way. It's incredible how that I mean, I think that that history of that narrative is like very long. Like that's very much an American story. But I think it even goes back beyond that, you know, in terms of morality tales or whatever. But the way that it's like sort of metastasized in the culture now with the like the my pillow guy is the one that I keep thinking <laughs> of. Are you familiar with that, dude? Only that Trump cites him sometimes. He's amazing. He sounds like Jesse Ventura. Got like one of those like sort of like a a Minnesota accent that and he speaks entirely through his sinuses. So it's like of a pipe organ kept being like, oh, no, like that. (laughs) And he and he's had, you know, this this life of being addicted. And then he says that that God gave him the vision for like a, a fucking memory foam pillow. And that is, you know, now it's his calling and he's very rich or whatever. But he's one of those, he was like, I died 14 times. I was a crack <laughs> addict, you know, just like crazy shit. But it's like all of that. It, this is like sort of, I guess, the the darker, like more ironic part of it, too, is that like, you know, all that journey, all that that decadence and rot and danger. And you come out the other side of it and all you can come up with is a memory foam pillow and telling everybody to vote for the guy that's already president. It, it's just very dark. I was going to scoff at God telling him to make a memory foam pillow, but really how different is that from Joseph Smith finding the golden plates? Yeah, another thing that's definitely real. (laughs) This is how compelling Korean baseball is, by the way, that we... And and I'm not faulting it. It is compelling, but again, we lack the complete vocabulary. And I saw this headline at MLB Trade Rumors yesterday and it said, which CPBL or KBO team are you adopting? And I found that assumption a little bit patronizing. And I know, and I feel bad now because you reacted as a glass half full person. And I reacted as a glass half empty person. But I just felt put off that this is given to us like you give a heroin addict methadone. Yeah, right. They're like, oh, you like baseball? Like, how about a bad version of it that's played overnight? <laughs> And the only guys you sort of recognize, this is, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, the KBO, there's two former Mets in it. And they're both guys that like, I would turn the Mets off when these guys came in to pitch. <laughs> like, I don't have any problem with them personally. I'm not watching Chris Flexen or Drew Gagnon again in my life. Like it just, it's, it's been too much. If they were with the Mets this year, of course, I would watch them a little bit, but they're over there. And the idea of like opting into it or the idea of being like, well, you can't get the Mets that you like, but you could get the guy that they their seventh starter who they call up and gives up five runs in three innings without fail. Like <laughs> you can get that guy at 5.30 a.m. Well, he might play up in that environment. The baseball prospectus assessment was that basically Flexen is probably too good to be over there, but it's the Mets, so what are you going to do? <laughs> Which it's cool to uh, be able to have that thought without any actual baseball to leaven it out. Right. There but for the grace of God goes Noah Syndergaard, and he might go anyway. Yeah. Well, he'll go wherever a team lets him pitch the way he should pitch. I had So when I was leaving Deadspin last fall, I 
took care to like find all the drafts that I had saved in the back end and just put them in a Word document so I'd have them. And one that I had that was, I think it's probably still on my desktop on my new computer somewhere, was that I had completely pre-written a Noah Syndergaard trade story. Like I had like 900 words, not including TKs or whatever, that basically presumed that he was being traded to the Astros because it seemed very much like that was going to happen. And sort of like explaining like why this would be good for him and how they would treat him the same way they treated Garrett Cole. Like just basically the the amount of value that a player can gain when they move from a Jurassic organization into even an Iron Age one. <laughs> yes, I still have that. So I don't know. Who knows uh, when that will run? But uh, yeah. The analytics department is chipping Flint as we speak. Yes. Yeah, well, the Mets are definitely on that like first act of 2001. <laughs> But if all that, but if all the apes were like somehow just interns, like they weren't even paying them. But yeah, that's what it was. That's the weird thing about hey, we're gonna sell the team, but still run it. There's no argument for that. If they had won three straight championships and and were just brilliantly successfully organized, you'd be like, you know, maybe we could keep these guys on. But no, that's the whole reason that they're selling the thing. Right. It's the whole. I mean, that's like the value that you're getting with the team. Like, even if you don't get the TV station, which again, I would encourage anyone that wants to buy the Mets, try real hard to get the TV station. It's it's where the money is. But otherwise, the the value of it is just that like they're undervalued just because the guys that are running it are such fucking putzes. And so you swap in anybody else, a replacement level owner, which is kind of an alarming thing to have to consider. But like a guy that cares a little bit and can also make payroll without getting nervous. (laughs) If that guy's there and he's not trying to micromanage the front office and every transaction, then like that's five wins to me. And go on without that certain thing Birds up in the trees would never sing No, sir, not without that certain thing Rudy Valley was a major star beginning in 1929 and lasting for about, oh, 13, 14 years before his vogue was over. He did have a second life in movies, where he shows up in a couple of Preston Sturges films, including The Great Palm Beach Story and Unfaithfully Yours. But this is him in his original element, singer and bandleader, the leader of Rudy Valley and his Connecticut Yankees, in March 1934, singing a song that originated in Great Britain without that certain thing. It was originally a hit for Bert Ambrose and his orchestra, which should only mean slightly less to you than it does to me. He existed in a strange ecological niche. He was less than two years older than Bing Crosby, and yet singers like Bing seemed more modern than him, and they just blew past him and then he was gone while they went on for decades. I hope that it doesn't seem like this episode of The Infinite Inning is going on for decades, but relief will soon be yours, because as soon as we make it to the other side of this last break, I will wrap my conversation with David Roth. Hang in that long. Thank you so much. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. 
Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Can I ask this question, though? Is there really... I know this is dumb because it hasn't always been the case. There have been many occasions when the Mets have outdrawn the Yankees, have been more successful than the Yankees. But is there any justification at all that somehow instead of being in the Bronx, I mean, this is what's crazy about it. Like, it's not like the Yankees are in Midtown. The Yankees are in the Bronx, which in in some ways is, has come up a lot since the neighborhood went into, into decline decades ago at this point. But in other ways, it still has its problems. The Mets are out in Willits Point. Is there any justification, I mean, as a New Yorker, to see them as not really being in New York and therefore not having access to the same resources that the Yankees do? No, I, I don't think so. I think it's just about how much money ownership has. I mean, they're further out, but it's like in terms of, of being able to get there. I mean, for the Yankees, I think that like part of their their strength in terms of drawing fans is that you can get there in a car with relative ease from New Jersey or from Westchester. Yes. And that's true. But like the, with the Mets, you can get there in a car with relative ease from Long Island. A lot of people live there, too. So I think that both of them are kind of like they have that that marginal thing, like getting to Mets games in a car. I remember doing it with my, my dad as a kid, like sucks ass. Like it takes a really long time. You have to be on some of the most reliably jammed and slow moving and under repair roads in the area. But I, I mean, I think some of it with the Mets is just that they like, I mean, again, cause they're an expansion franchise and the Yankees are like the, whatever the Tiffany franchise. I think the thing that makes them seem, if there's an argument for them being less New York it's that they have always been chintzier and shittier and more small time than the Yankees in terms of who owns them. I don't think it's inherent. Yeah, no, they haven't had their best owner yet. No, which is weird. I mean, their best owner was like Joan Payson because everybody thought she was a nice lady. <laughs> right. But like, yeah, they haven't. I guess that like the the thing with the Wilpons that I need to kind of like bear in mind is that like, so they, they took over in like 2000 and or a little after that. They bought out Abner Doubleday, who's like people liked a lot more and not Abner Nelson, Doubleday, Nelson Doubleday, Nelson Doubleday. <laughs> they've, they've offended the memory of Abner Doubleday, but they bought out Nelson Doubleday. Another cultist. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, but there's a period, I guess it's like basically split between when all their money went away that they had invested in that pyramid scheme. Right. And that time before that, they actually spent lustily, but in like, weird will pony ways like if you look at the like the 2006 team it's like there's like three guys over 40 that played a lot on that team like it's completely baffling it, but it's very much like how the Wilpons do it they, it's back when they had the money to spend they were able to like perform their neuroses in full and but the neuroses haven't changed it's still like did this person play for the yankees before if so get them has this person done it at the highest level? Is it someone willing to talk about hitting with our owner for some reason? 
But that's basically it. I'm going to look up that team now because it was I like... I just did. And the Quattrogenarians, is that the right way that to refer uh, to yeah. it? You, you had in declining order, you had Julio Franco at 47, who actually got into 95 games. You had Roberto that Hernandez, Tom Glavin, and El Duque. Yeah, that's like that's kind of a lot for a baseball team. It is. And then I think if you keep going, Moises Alou was on that team. Jeff Conine, I think, was on that team as well. That's like a lot of dudes in their their later 30s. Well, I mean, the bigger problem is that the younger guys on the team, I mean, like Lastings Millage was supposed to be this great prospect, but they couldn't develop him. And I don't know. It's funny. At the time, I definitely blamed the the organization for that. And it's probably true. Like they've really not successfully developed that type of outfielder and they've had a couple of attempts at it. The ones that have worked out are guys that they basically let some other team develop. Like I think if the Mets had kept Carlos Gomez, he probably wouldn't have turned into Carlos Gomez with Millage. I remember a big part of the issue with him. And I think this was, I guess maybe also true with other teams. The veterans like thought he was an asshole and the owners are like very much inclined to take the side of those veterans, not just to hire as many of them as possible. Although there's that too. And so I think that he was like not served very well by being in a clubhouse where he was constantly being told to like know his place and shut the fuck up and respect authority or whatever. Right. There's a lot of other elements to that too. He's, you know, whatever he is, a black American ball player on a team that was almost entirely older, richer. The clubhouse leaders were white guys. Like it was not what you want necessarily. No. And and I mean, he had some other chances and never did develop, but it, it can sometimes yeah. be tough to recover from that kind of start. It certainly didn't help. It's, I don't know. It's a very weird organization. Cause like, I do care about them. I love the experience of going to games and I've missed that so much right. more acutely than, than I would have expected. Cause I don't go to that many games per year. You know, I'll go to 10 or 12, but Again, it's another one of those things that sort of lets me know I'm alive, you know, like that feels normal. And even going there and, and like having them just stomp on my nuts in some terrible new way, which they, you know, <laughs> it was a giveaway it's day. It's part I of believe. the deal. Was it? Yeah, right. It is. Everybody gets to throw a Brandon Nimmo gnome at my, at my nuts. The, but the like experience of that is like, I don't know. I've, I've become so acclimated to, it going and being a certain way that I just like, I don't know. Like I have a hard time accepting that it could be different. I mean, I had that with like the idea when it seemed like they were going to be sold to Stephen Cohen or it never really seemed to me like they'd be sold to A-Rod or whatever. Like there's a part of me that just believes that they will never be sold because I can't imagine a new owner for the team. All these like the hedge fund guys like have enough money and in some cases, Cohen and uh, David Einhorn, who came before him, are Mets fans. Like, these are the guys that should be buying the team. Not to say they should have that much money, but, like, if anybody does and they want to spend it on that. And yet, like, it's just very difficult for me to think of how different that experience would be if someone else were in charge. Well, I wonder if it would be as good. And I, I know this is sort of contradictory and possibly masochistic, but, like, I had that experience growing up with the Yankees in that mm -hmm. during the the period that I came to maturity, sure, when I was very young, they won, but they went through this long 20-year period, basically, of being somewhere between very good in season and being very bad, but never making the playoffs. And they played in this historic, but visibly decaying stadium in a visibly de a historic, but visibly decaying city. Yes. Yeah, exa that's exactly where I was going to go. And 
Now, I mean, that they haven't won a World Series since 2009, notwithstanding, they win 100 games every year or 95 games every year. They have perfected their system, at least insofar as that goes, and they play in this plastic, artificial ballpark. And somehow, for all that success, the charm has gone out of it. And again, I know that that's be careful what you wish for. And again, my fandom is not what it was when I was a kid, but even so, like, I'm not saying they'd be a better team if they lost a hundred games every once in a while, but there's something that's very rote about the experience. It seems to me now. I think that's true. I mean, that's like sort of the, the argument against the emotional argument against like the sort of hyper efficient new way of, of doing baseball to me is that it's that like every team is trying to do the same thing. There aren't that many teams that are weird and the teams that are bad are all kind of bad in the same ways and for the same reasons. Right. But there's now like, I mean, there've been like sort of, you get these different tasting notes of <laughs> unpleasantness with like a team, like, you know, again, like the pirates or that's like sort of strategically, they're not tanking for any tactical or strategic reason. They're just doing it because like, who's going to stop them. They get paid either way off the TV contract. So it's just like, who gives a shit? Right. But then the teams that are tanking, like, I don't know. I've been fascinated. Like the the Mariners last year seemed like they were trying to do something interesting and then they just wound up doing the same thing they always do. The Mariners are, I would almost like to be a Mariners fan just in the sense that it's been 42 years, 43 years of Mariners baseball. It's been almost 20. I think I'm not looking, but 2001 was the last playoff appearance. And mm -hmm. that that would be a bandwagon that would be fun to, to get on. I mean, now, just so you could be in for the big win at the end when it came, if it came. Yeah. When they were bad, too. I mean, they were they had all these picks. I mean, they were drafting second and third and fifth over and over. And they just got every single one of them wrong. It's a remarkable. I haven't watched it yet. Our former coworker John Boyce is doing like one of those documentary series on them at SB Nation, and I will probably wind up watching them because I have always been fascinated by. When I was writing the Royals essay for the BP Annual this year, there's a long stretch where they duffed every high draft pick they had too, and I was like, "How unprecedented is this?" Hang on, let me Google Jeff Clement. <laughs> And like, it turns out that like the Mariners one actually was worse that like, they just were not finding value anywhere in the draft for like a decade, which is very difficult to do. Like you're drafting like, like 35 guys a year. And as far as I know, they are not like the Reds or even the Giants weren't selected years, just intentionally tanking picks. So they didn't have to pay them. No, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, you're right that there were like the. The Pirates and Royals too and stuff like that. Like where the Royals trapped like Luke Hochevar ahead of like a bunch of really because he Hans was like Wagner, signable. I believe it was. Yeah, right. It was like which, you know, there's an argument here and there, one way or the other. But yeah, the like all of that, I'm actually looking up who they drafted him ahead of. Uh but yeah, like that stuff you can pin like squarely on the owners. But a lot of the the other shit, like the Mariners were really just like had bad management. And also, like, an owner that didn't really necessarily care about, like, whether they were winning or not. Right. I guess when they were owned by the Nintendo guys, they were the most competitive, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's when they had A-Rod, they had Junior Griffey, they had Edgar Martinez. I mean, they put together a... Kaz Tatsaki. Right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they put together a pretty... I love that guy. Yeah, all right, so guys drafted after Luke Hochevar. 
well, Greg Reynolds didn't make it, and then Evan Longoria. Then the Pirates picked Brad Lincoln. Delightful. <laughs> that was another tanked pick, as I recall. Yeah. Mariners draft Brandon Morrow, which is like one of the better picks they made then. And then you've got Andrew Miller, Clayton Kershaw, Tim Lincecum, Max Scherzer. <laughs> this is like the next 10 picks. <laughs> it's like the next there, 10 There's some guys famers. in between, but yeah, there's like, there's a few guys in there that could really make a case. There's, I mean, you know, a lot of teams got stuff wrong elsewhere in that first round and they were including like in the middle of those, but yeah, geez. Well, even if you just look at the last, I mean, since they've been in the playoffs, going back to 2001, they took John Mayberry. Then they took Adam Jones, who was a, a successful pick, but they traded him. You mentioned Jeff Clement, Brandon Morrow, Matt Mangini, Philip Omont. I'm just going year by year. Josh Fields, Steve Barron, Nick Franklin, Dustin Ackley, Tajuan Walker, Danny Holson, Mike Zunino, who, I mean, can play catcher, but he can't hit it all, and he's now with the Rays. DJ Peterson and Alex Jackson, and I'll cut it off there. And they didn't have a first-round pick in 2015, so I don't know what was up with that. But Did they sign Cano that year? Oh, yeah, that's probably what it was. I mean, I don't remember when that happened, but that's the only thing I could think of. But yeah, that's an, an incredible string. And like a lot of those guys really were like top 10, top 5 picks. Right. Not to say I would have done better, but I also don't know how much worse I could have done. Read a, a reasonable prospect ranking and pick the best guy off the list every time. Boy, that really is a drag. I mean, a lot of those guys didn't even play in the majors. No, or they, they did and they, they played badly. So I have no idea how long we've done because we've had so many <laughs> me, me interruptions. I think we're probably around an hour now. Probably. So before we, we get to the end, I wanted to touch on your most recent piece for The New Republic, in which you wrote, very few things about Trump have ever improved, have not instantly unraveled into a tangle of fragrant, grifty waste. I love that adjective. Upon closer examination. When you were a kid, or possibly yesterday, did you ever read the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes? Because reading what you said, I realized that never has a story's moral been so wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, the story, I think about that one a lot, obviously. I don't know if we want to spoil it for the listeners, but it's a short one. <laughs> it's very short. But there is... Uh, also, everyone already knows it. But yeah, there is... It's a very hopeful story in some ways, like in ways that I don't think I really appreciated at the time, where like... You just want to believe that at some point people would be like, you look stupid, dude. And then everyone would realize. Right. But uh, yeah, doesn't necessarily work that way. I should say that the fundamental insight that everything about Trump gets way worse the more you look at it is actually Tom Skoka's copyrighted original <laughs> there. I mean, it's obviously something that now everyone agrees with, but he was the first person that I, I saw say it. It's like, it's all, I, mean, I don't think anybody's really, anybody that isn't like sort of hopelessly a believer like no one's doing the magical thinking thing with Trump anymore, except for like maybe the people that cover him for the New York Times. <laughs> like the idea that, you know, he's be changed by the moment and will rise to the challenge or X, Y, Z. Like nobody knows that shit's not happening now. No, the sword is staying in the stone. Like yeah. he would not know what that meant if he, he saw it. He's not interested in it. Yeah, he's like looking at it. He's like, beautiful stone. Terrific. I have a larger one. Like, I mean, it's not a guy that is trying to, I mean, this is fundamentally the thing that's, been most frustrating for me is that he he just does not try very hard and it's an important job and a lot of people have a lot riding on it and yet like because none of those people really matter to him he's not really going to be moved to do anything other than sort of bitch about his own stuff 
there's a positive to it that a lot of people have pointed out. I mean, a lot of people are dying for it now too, but the thing that you just said, the the positive aspect to it is that if he were a more assertive or less lazy person, then he really could try to be a dictator right now in a real Hitlerian way because Look, America is a secular, has a secular religion or traditionally has. It's the Constitution. It's George Washington. It's this ethical system of government that only works if you believe in it. There's nothing that keeps us from being a banana republic except that religion. And somehow until now, that's never broken. But he has the cabinet members in place, the Senate in place, and a fairly prostrate opposition party that would allow him to seize that kind of power were he the one to want to exercise it. But fundamentally, he just wants to watch TV and play golf. Yep. That is that is a saving grace. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I think that that point about the sort of civic religion thing is really well made and, and well taken there, too. I mean, that that's like I think that's the only reason why places like the establishment papers or cables got its own mental illness issues but that like the reason that the times covers him as if he's a normal chief executive is that those reporters that beat they're detailed to the office and so they cover whoever is in the office as if they are like other previous occupants of it and so the idea that like somehow that there's some dignity inherent to the office that then is conferred upon the person that occupies it like i don't think that that belief can survive his presidency whenever it ends just as I can't believe that the idea that that people still persisting and thinking that somehow like rich people are inherently smart because they're rich. Right. Like if we come out of this and there's anybody that still thinks that shit, then like, I don't know, I, I have failed. There are times that he doesn't seem fundamentally stupid, fundamentally uncurious. Yes. Uneducated, yeah. despite all the education that he likes to claim there. There are times where you can see there is something at work there, but the other stuff overwhelms it like this pathological need to be treated as being very, very smart that would be pathetic in another person. You would feel bad for them that they just needed that validation so badly. But in his case, it leads to all this magical thinking that has put us all in a very bad place. You're exactly right about that. I think that like everything with him, I mean, there's no subtext at all to him. And so all of his his needs and and sort of anxieties are very close to the surface. And like, if you're somebody who has a lot of anxieties and needs, then like you would think that there'd be some way to find that relatable or or almost sympathetic. But it's just not fucking there, man. Like he's not somebody. He's not a real person. And so there's this all of that anxiety just seems to come from the shallowest possible place and lead nowhere. You're absolutely right. It occurs to me as we're talking, by the way, that that Hans Christian Andersen story about the emperor's new clothes doesn't anticipate fascism. I mean, it's from the 1830s, but say you're you're living in Germany in 1945, you do clearly understand that the emperor has new clothes because the allies have bombed his clothes to shit, but he still has enough guns that it's problematic for you to point that out. Yeah, which is... You know, the darker scenarios for where this all could go sort of lead in that direction. But like, again, fundamentally, this is where Trump's lack of ambition is maybe the thing that's holding all of this still together. I mean, he's just like, all he wants is to be on TV. And if they're being mean to him, he'll complain about it. And if they're being nice to him, he'll crow about it. 
But like, it's not in him to want to like actually shut down a television station. He just bitches about it. Right. That is the difference. Do you think as we go through this crisis and try to exit from it, that sports has any lessons for people who are libertarians or think in a libertarian way? Before I was talking about good players on bad teams and and I was thinking of Ernie Banks, right? He plays shortstop. He hits over 40 home runs for the Cubs for four straight years. He has the most famous positive attitude ever. He wins two MVPs, but never comes within a thousand miles of a ring because he doesn't have, to paraphrase what a team is, the community. Or I talked about quarterbacks before. Think of, of Trent Dilfer with the Bucks, who went like 13 and 21 in his first three seasons. And then he went to Baltimore and he had the right cast around him. And no, he didn't make anyone forget Johnny Unitas, but he won a Super Bowl. And I feel like if you can get that, you might be able to understand why no one owes you a haircut right now and you should stay home. I mean, I think there's people that have a lot invested in not getting it. For 40 years, at least, the rhetoric from the right, and I think the Democrats have have been very unwilling to challenge it in any sort of full-throated way for reasons that we don't need to speculate about, but, you know, are disappointing all the same. But there is this, like, the idea there is that, like, everything that you get, you have to take, you know, that it's it's on you, that, like, the government is going to try to stop you from doing it. Authority is going to try to stop you from doing it. But, like, so every American life is, like, envisioned as this hackneyed, violent hero's journey for you to do on your own conquering what you can and then keeping it from everybody else. The call to I think get a haircut. That, yeah. Right. And I think that, so when you see people like talking about this stuff where they're like, you know, it's not all generational. I think there are like older people, richer people do feel more entitled to shit because they have more, but to see people being like, when I can't get my, my hair dyed along the usual schedule, that's the same thing as a Holocaust. <laughs> like those people are assholes. They should know that what they're saying is annoying, but they don't, and wrong and obnoxious, but they, they fundamentally can't hear themselves. I think though that that is such a small faction of, of what America actually is. And this is the part that I've been like, to go back to what I was saying before that I've been heartened by is I think that people do appreciate that community matters and that the stuff that makes that up which includes, you know, bars and restaurants and places you go to spend money or whatever, that like all of that is a part of a system of being and like a sort of like a an organism. And that like you wouldn't want to live without that. The idea that like you take so much that it's just you and that everything that you go out and get, you're just like raiding and coming back with or whatever. I don't think that most people really want to live that way, but you have to articulate an alternative to it. You have to be able to say, like, your life is worth more than this. And Democrats won't or can't. And Republicans never will. And so you're kind of left with people that believe a thing and have no way of making that belief real in their political life beyond, like, you know, just living those values every day as people. Well, what I was going to say is that. Obama tried a couple of times, but for a guy who was so articulate and eloquent, it was a very ham-fisted way of doing it. And I constantly reflect, and I don't remember what the context was, when he said, you didn't build this, talking about the country, basically, to, uh, I think, in the context of, of small business ownership or job creators. 
And he was kind of officially paraphrasing an Elizabeth Warren line there, which was basically the idea that like, if you have a successful business, you should know that you didn't build it alone, which is the way that she said it, Right. that the roads that get people there, the education that your employees get, that makes them good employees, that all of that is a part of the broader package of American life. Go ahead, though, with what you well, were saying. Well, just that, okay, so you and I pull our baseball card collections together, and we're dumb enough to open a store. So great. Now we're job creators. And that much is true to the extent that we employ ourselves or employ anybody else. But the road that leads the customers to our store, the community built that. And the police that keeps our store from being robbed, the community pays mm-hmm. for that. And the military that prevents the British from reclaiming their colonies, should they choose to do that, the community pays for that too. Like to me, that's what you didn't build this says. But yet, because we created that business, somehow we could have the attitude that we don't owe anybody anything. Yeah. It's really hard to know how to reason with that. I mean, I don't think you can. I don't think that that's an adult perspective, and I don't think that you need to credit it. I mean, I think that this is the the reason why it frustrates me to see Democrats trying to like bring Republicans over to their side or something. Somebody that believes that, that believes that like fundamentally that taxation is theft and all government is illegitimate and oppressive, and that like only the thing that I have, my job as an accountant preparing tax returns or whatever, that that exists independent of anything but my own merits. That's not an adult. That's a seven-year-old, man. Like that's, you just, I don't know where you would go with that. Neither do I. So I know we must be coming to the end here. So very briefly as we possibly can for what is a a huge issue, but I I didn't want to, to dwell on this the whole time and we very easily could. Just like those people, we do want everything back. We do want to be able to go out to the local bistro and and have a nice dinner. We do want sports back. And baseball being first in line on the calendar is talking a lot about coming back. And it seems to me that there are intractable problems with that that apply not just to sports, but to reopening schools. And and first, anyone who has an underlying condition just can't go. And then second, anyone who lives with someone who has an underlying condition can't go or they can never go home again. And that rules out a lot of people, not just out of school, but out of baseball, out of movie theaters and everything. And all these businesses, including baseball, have a duty to try. I understand that to figure out how to come back. We want them back. So I get it. But I don't understand why we're pretending that those problems are susceptible to solutions that are short of a vaccine. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they aren't. (laughs) I don't know what to add to that. I mean, it's just that simple. It's frustrating, though, because you know it's different for baseball teams, I guess, because they do make most of their money off off TV stuff. But to see the idea of like attempting to reopen while maintaining the sort of distancing stuff that's going to be necessary until there's a vaccine, or in lieu of like actual testing or anything that would qualify as a response, if you're just telling people, "All right, your restaurant is open again. We're not covering your employees' unemployment anymore." Also, your restaurant can never be more than 25% full, then your restaurant will close. Right. Like you can't show, a, you can't have your movie theater work if you can't, if the maximum capacity of people that you have in there is a third of the former seats that you used to have. And so that element of it to me, I mean, with baseball, that's part of the fun of it is being there with other people. Like if, if the Mets had a game and they were like, all right, well, there's a thousand tickets for each game. Like I would want one of those tickets but I wouldn't expect it to feel like a a Mets game. 
No, no. You know, and, right. and I don't think that that would necessarily be what they would want either. No. And the, the scary question is, there's no guarantee that there will be an effective vaccine anytime soon. So it might be that we have to accept that we're in this for a while. And I don't necessarily mean the total shutdown, but an adjustment to what we had been used to forever as our way of living. And, you know, during World War II, you could not buy a new car. No, or virtually no new cars were sold in the United States from 1941 through 1945. You just had to live with it. And we can't do that now. We don't seem to be in the situation where we can do a, a parallel thing that involves the Olive Garden. Yeah, which is pathetic. I also feel like, again, we shouldn't discount the fact that give or take a few fucking cranks driving in circles around their governor's house. People did do it right. for two months. Right. And they got nothing for it. And that, like, I think that people are willing to sacrifice to save their neighbors and their friends and their family. Like, they're willing. I honestly, like, was a little surprised at how willing people were, but they were. But if you don't make it worth their while, then, like, it's pointless. It's impossible. Like, that's the part that really makes me feel dark about all of this stuff. I'm trying to focus on the fact that the people are better than the state and that the response suggests that there's something to build on there in terms of the civic religion that you were talking about not being entirely specious or dead. But it's incredible how much we're going to have to have to, to fight to get back to whatever the unacceptable old normal was. I mean, it just feels awfully far gone. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Join us next time when David Roth and I remember some countries, the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> Oh, boy. And on that note, thank you, David, so much for spending this time with me and continue to dwell safely in Manhattan. I'm going to do everything I can. Uh, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me. Well, I didn't expect I'd still be talking now. Your normal after show host has finals. Remember finals? That's when the people who you paid $20,000 to tell you whether you got something for the money. For twenty grand, they ought to take the exams for you, then give you an A, a pat on the head, and some chocolates. You can follow David Roth on Twitter at David underscore J underscore Roth. When you look at it, that J is like an island in a lonely sea. As for me, you can follow me at Go Stephen Goldman, but have a care when you walk behind, for there may be a ten-foot pit just beyond the gate. You can also write us, by which I mean me, at infiniteinning at gmail.com, and there's a Facebook group. Go to Facebook, search Infinite Inning Knock, we will let you in, and then all you need is a membership badge and a decoder ring to become part of Captain Infinite's Midnight Inning Rangers. Just send in all your box tops, kids. Should you wish to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash theinfiniteinning. We thank you very kindly, it does help. Finally, should you find yourself with a moment to spare, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate review and subscribe and if your podcatcher doesn't let you do those things donate to a zoo zoos are having a very hard time right now this podcast was co-produced by jeff paternostro and myself our theme song which you are hearing now and have been hearing throughout the episode is a co-composition of myself and dr rick mooring who asks hey steve how come you never tell us a good bedtime story like the pitcher who tried to pick off his own shadow next time ricky next time well, welcome back, brave voyagers. After two hours and 24 minutes, your trip to the infinite inning has returned you safely home. I'll be back next week with more tales, and you know what? Discussion 2 from Inside the Infinite Inning. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 